Hello, and before you get started on this episode of Zapped to the Past, we would just like to give a massive shout out to the following people Andy Marsh, Cole Hutchinson, David Hearn, Sven Osa, 2000DC, Gary Heather, Roger McNally, Lee Dove, Mark Fletcher, Etienne Vettingfeld, Niall Bullitt, Alexander Gosling, Tim TJ Walker, Phil Sowerby, Joshua Kay, Dominic Kendrick, Rune P, Nick James, Daniel Spreadbury, Peter Price, Richard Davey, Dennis B, AL82 Retro, Liam Carew, Dylan Darch, Trevor Planner, Alistair McMillan, Mark Schutz, Lee Sparkles, Dan Wales, Gary Wilson, Oscar Jacobson, Brian Howarth, Rob Clayton, and Clyde Radcliffe. These amazing people have backed our Patreon at the C64 tier, and the support they offer is just awesome. If you want to join them and get a mention in next month's shout-out, access to our Discord server, early access to ad-free episodes, along with any special releases we put out, along with anything else we can think of, then sign up by the 18th of the month at patreon.com forward slash zapped to the past for little more than the price of a pint of beer. It helps us keep playing the games so you don't have to. Welcome to episode 115 of Zapped to the Past. I am Adrian Mills and I'm joined as always by Mr. Graham Raddings. If you haven't listened before, this is a podcast where we discuss games that were released for the Commodore 64. Last week, we looked at our second batch of games from issue 46 of Zap 64, which we are in no way affiliated with, and were doubled over in actual pain at Double Dragon, bent many a pass in Micro Soccer, and took our time to explore the times of lore. This week, we conclude our look at the games in February 1989, along with what was also lighting up our TV and cinema screens that month. Graham, ferriers from February with the festival of games that await us this week. In this badly constructed chicken coop that, in spite of the best advice to your neighbour, is clearly a badly made drive-through takeaway for foxes of an episode, we feel the awesome might and advanced hardware and hydraulic power of a mega 3D shoot-em-up arcade only one that's been squashed into a shoebox with a comparative memory of a pigeon in the C64 conversion of Thunderblade. We then ditch that posh arcade and head down Cheapskate's parade to the nearly brand Clone World arcade zone for some unfun in the eye-itching C64 conversion of Guerrilla War, and then grab our lover's only pack of tarot cards, shout Ababo at some passing strangers, and head to the Arctic in a speedboat, just like James Bond doesn't, in the floaty Live and Let Die. Have you ever seen a collection of worried chickens in some kind of pallet wood-based penitentiary? Well, I have, now. We also get fully cerebral, augment ourselves in useful and eyebrow-raising ways before diving into the Matrix in the tech-noir and intensely good Neuromancer. We ditch the fun of the game board variant and opt instead for an eye-straining, tiny icon-led trip to a headache in the pointless C64 version of the board game Espionage before finally grabbing our best pokey sticks and some coloured or stripy balls and head to the confusingly-sized snooker and pool tables of Rackham, a C64 version of a 1973 film licence 
and more unpleasant arcade catastrophes. What is going on? And for God's sake, Adrian, who ordered the burly beef? Did you enjoy your ferry ride? Sorry, it was a bit choppy. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a bit up and down. A bit up and down, bit, I think. A bit up and down, a bit up and down. You know, you should, they say you shouldn't sit over and stare over the side of a ferry when it's rocking back and forth or side to side or up and down or whatever it's Well, because you'll fall off. Well, apparently it's, it doesn't help you with your seasickness. I don't know. I've never been seasick in my life. I don't, I don't understand what Well, you means. come from a, a long line of, you know, ancient mariners. But put me on a roller coaster and it's a nightmare. I had the unfortunate pleasure. I'm a fairly, fairly big set guy. I went on some crappy ride at the one of the fairs one of those fairs that you know the unfairs that you go to <laughs> the unfairs yeah it's what i call them i don't call them a fair i call them an unfair because they're so so expensive i just thought you'd knock the f off fun fair it's exactly what i've done because they're not fun and they're expensive so it's just a, <laughs> that heady smell of hot dog and sugary nougat in the air and then you know five quid for a go on the vomitron no thanks no it's probably not but i would actually like to go to a pun fair i think that would be quite good because the clues in the title there Yes, drummers are welcomed there. Every, everywhere you go. Uh, anyway, I got, I got crushed into the seat on this ride, crushed in. Not like it was comfortable. It took two people to squash me into the seat, and it only clicked once on a safety system that should be at least a minimum of two or three clicks, I felt. <laughs> it was precarious. I felt like I was going to fly out of that thing. It was unpleasant for everybody. Not so much for my daughter, who was, thought it was hilarious. But there you go. But anyway, right, let's get into some games, shall we? So let's get into our first game. And Graham, it's over to you. And it's time for this, the, the awesome sounding Thunderblade. It does sound quite awesome, actually. Yeah, it's a um, great name. This was £9.99 um, from US Gold, or the publisher was US Gold. It was copyright Sega, of course. The code duties here, Chris Butler. That's stalwart of an arcade conversion. The Commando, Ghosts and Goblins, Space Area, 720 Degrees, loads of stuff there. And the musician was Mark Tate. Um, bit of a curious conversion, arcade conversion, this. Um, obviously, this is a 1987 Sega arcade, obviously Thunderblade. Now, this was based somewhat on the Blue Thunder TV series, apparently, with even the arcade title screen um, had a still from the Blue Thunder TV show on it. So that title screen is actually Blue Thunder. So there you go. Yeah, I saw that. Um, Weird. Weird. The arcade game was both stand-up cabinet and hydraulic helicopter cockpit seat variation. Pretty elaborate. Um and it used Sega's third-generation Scalar technology and, of course, the all-powerful Sega X board. Dun, dun, dun. So that's essentially the same as OutRun, Space Area, Afterburner, etc., but with more memory and with a more powerful GPU, allowing twice as many sprites and textures on the screen at once, twice as many tile layers, faster fill rates, more colors, more sprite background and rotation effects. It was definitely a machine that had quite the formidable architecture, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So those were all pretty unique visuals for the time, actually. It doesn't seem like it when you kind of look at it, but there's a lot of unique stuff going on in there. It's part on rails, part top-down 2D, 3D shooter, and part 3D first person, or should I say over the shoulder? That third person, I don't know what you call that. Into the screen, just into the screen. Into the screen kind of thing. Afterburner kind of shooter type, that sort of Space thing. Space area. Yeah, quite frantic, especially if you were sat in the hydraulic version with lots of fast visuals and things to move at and shoot and stuff. Exciting. Now, mm. um, I never. it was never a game I had a lot of experience of or much time for, really. Even when I replayed it at the one of the arcade clubs, um, it does have unique visuals. They have got the hydraulic cabinet, I think, and the Leeds one, I think. Um, but it's, it's you know, it is what it is at the time. Um, the top-down view is played in a way that would later become more synonymous in the way that it looks with 
things like uh, Grand Theft Auto, actually, on the PC, the original, the original Grand Theft Auto, mm. that kind of top-down sort of view of the skyscrapers and a little bit of perspective on them. But also there's loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of shoot-em-ups that adopt that kind of view as well. Um, sort of, you know, the, the sort of the bullet hell type shmups and stuff like that tend to adopt that a bit as well. So kind of top-down angle perspective. Lots of colour, lots of graphics, lots of sound, lots of movement, and lots of arcade shebang. A challenge extraordinaire, one might say, to pack that into 64K. Um, uh-huh. So, as an aside, by the way, eventually appeared this game on pretty much everything. Amiga, Atari, Spectrum, Mega Drive, Master System, the list goes on and on and on. So, a game that seemed to be well converted, let's say. Mm. Um, The arcade is actually pretty short, with four levels, which includes a flight through a city, the wilderness, a canyon, and an oil refinery. And each level is made of a short 2D overhead shoot-em-up element, which then switches to the 3D over-the-shoulder afterburner type view. And then it's back again as you progress through the levels and stages. Your way is constantly repelled by buildings that you need to move around and avoid, along with tanks, helicopters, and gun turrets on the overhead sections, and then more buildings, pillars, and other military vehicles, etc., and missiles. You have three lives to make it through the stages and the game. Not a lot of lives, that is it. The official no. scenario for this, it says, um, cue the sort of A-team drumbeat. Your country is being overrun by the marauding rebel forces of a merciless and unforgiving dig... I'm not going to do it like that. Dictator. General Swindles. General Swindles. Battle-weary troops <laughs> accede to the superior power of the rebel's sophisticated weaponry, and it's only a matter of time before the government is overthrown. USGHQ have summoned you, that's US Gold HQ, if you didn't really figure that out yet, have summoned you as their last remaining hope to vanquish the enemy using the ultimate flying machine, Thunderblade, an advanced attack helicopter, an experienced veteran of many an aerial campaign. You can accomplish the seeming, sorry, can you accomplish the seemingly impossible? The mission details are outlined to you in various strategical, strategical, that's not a word I would think is real, but anyway, strategic <laughs> stages, skyscraper city, mountain, desert, uh, river delta and refinery in each sector you will come up against both ground and air forces all trying to defend one of the super fortresses which must be destroyed at all costs damn it once this last stronghold has been defeated you'll deserve a good old rest okay that's the scenario so mm. there it is big arcade big ambition the c64 does do a few things well considering the severe limitations firstly um it is a complete version so everything is here including all four levels kind of incredible that really yeah um, yeah sec- secondly there is an attempt to recreate both the 2d overhead and the 3d over the shoulder viewpoints a mind-boggling challenge one might say and thirdly <laughs> the goal here was to cl- was clearly to retain enough of the arcade tone and feel and look as possible in a single load including remarkably the sprite scaling and the speed to remember all those things now trying to cram all that in 64k honestly you'd have to be bonkers wouldn't you anyway you would so i found myself horrified and in awe at the same time with this game (laughs) on the one hand a brave and at times incredible port of an arcade with some dedication to the way the arcade plays yes obviously the graphics are never ever going to be anywhere near arcade quality and it does play somewhat slowly somewhat a bit too easily and it does look very basic but but there are moving, scalable buildings in that 2D section, and as blocky as they look, they move okay. And your controls and the sprites are not terrible. It does feel like a, it's a little jerky, and its lack of smoothness combined with the really basic look to the graphics does leave you kind of reeling a bit. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Then there's the transition to 3D over the shoulder. It's clumsy and perhaps doesn't have the smoothness or feeling of last month's Hellfire attack from Martek. But the buildings, etc., are zooming towards you pretty fast. There are a bunch of attacking enemies, and the levels do play out like the arcade, too. Interesting, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Main game window is the entire top of the C64 sort of game window, 
Say for two lines of character you at the very bottom, here you will find your current score, distance to the end of the level, the high score, your remaining number of lives, your current speed, a hit counter, and your stage indication. How much can you get on two lines? Honestly, crazy. Um, this doesn't change for either view of the game. You control the helicopter in the overhead stages with up, down to dive and climb, and left and right to bank, left and right, and fire will shoot your weapons. In the over-the-shoulder view, up and down, shift to accelerate and decelerate. Um, so uh, left and right still does the banking, left and right, and shooting still does the shooting. In the overhead stages, tanks and such will appear on the ground. You fly over them and shoot everything, avoiding buildings, etc. In the over-the-shoulder view, buildings fly towards you, as do helicopters, planes, etc., etc., and you must shoot and avoid. Eventually, you will get to another overhead view where you must shoot the ground targets on a giant ship or craft to blow it up and complete the level. You'll get a quick tally of your score, times bonuses, etc., and then onwards you go. The game fundamentally plays the same, with some impressive, the game fundamentally plays the same as arcade with some impressive graphic variation. Sorry, the game fundamentally plays the same with some impressive graphic variations for a C64. So there are some really quite clever graphics in there. The second level, for example, the mountain um, desert has some really large, impressive graphics that are moving towards you. It's quite good. Um, I think they were pretty good considering, and it's in the theme of it, and it's similar on the other levels too. Eventually, though, after you've gone through that, you will come to the final command fortress, and if you defeat that, well, then you've won the game and you'll get the ending. And there is an ending. There is. Crazy. Yep. So all in all, um, I think Chris Butler has pulled off some incredible coding here to cram this into 64K. The graphics are very rough um, and there's no doubt about that. But there are likewise some very fast moving and clever visuals, faster than they've ever been in the other games Chris Butler's done. The faster than space are in, they're bigger and there's more of them on the screen at the same time. So I think that's that's to be, to be applauded. And also, don't forget that in that first section, he's included, he's got scaling sprites in there. So as you move over the sprites, albeit that they're very basic, they do move in that kind of perspective. That's very, very clever. And I can only imagine incredibly difficult to code on a C64. You don't have a lot of memory or graphic memory or processor to do a lot of that with. Incredible, really. Mm -hmm. So I, I think in all, all in all, the look and feel of this is almost unique to the C64 in terms of that bit. Not many of them have done that. You know, not even some of the 16-bit versions took on that challenge. What are you talking, kind of you're talking about? The, you're talking about the buildings from the top? Yeah, the buildings, the top-down buildings, yeah, that sort of scaling, the sc scaling of them as you go over. So when you move up and down sort of thing, you, you, you yeah, about. Right. Yeah, all, okay. the, all the variations of this on all the platforms didn't do that, mm. which is strange, but they didn't. So, um, and I think that's pretty impressive. The music from Mark Tate is pretty decent. It, it, is something of a ver it is something of a version of the arcade music, and it does kind of work in context. It's neither amazing nor annoying, but it's not bad. Um, you can have either sounds or music selectable from the title screen with the M and S keys. You can also control the joystick speed with F7. Not quite sure what that did, but I didn't really find it changed that much, or at least not for me. Um, there is also a high score entry sequence and a high score too, which is cramming a lot of stuff in. So you still you've got to give the guy credit. Mm. Now he has managed to cram a very, very, very complicated arcade into a C64 and make it a complete experience. That ain't bad. That ain't bad to do that. As a game, well, the arcade is visually interesting. And the fancy cabinets, etc., always made these games, for me, look a lot better than they played. Under the hood, it's a pretty average shooter and a short one, really. So it's not winning any mega game design awards in terms of the actual arcade or anything else. But this conversion, this conversion is complete. I give them credit for that. And where it's been possible, it adheres to the arcade in terms of its kind of scaling and its ambition. And that is impressive on the C64. The code displayed, it might not look like it, but the code base that's displayed for this game is very, very clever. It's just unfortunate that this game has, A, never really been my cup of tea. So it's not a game I particularly like. I never really liked Afterburner that much in the arcade either. So these games just don't really do it for me. Um, 
but I also do admire the ambition and I admire the fact that they've at least created a complete complete game here. So all of it's in. It might, you know, it, it might be very basic, but it is there. Um, and I think you'd be impressed with the effort. Now, considering how some of these other arcade conversions we'd have just really just go for the money with the license name and then don't bother with anything else. At the very least, the whole game is here and it'll be great. Might not look exactly like the arcade, but they have made the game complete with no real bugs that I could find. I thought it wasn't bad for that. 69% you got in Zap. I'd probably say that's about right. It ain't going to be my flavor. I ain't going to be one that loading this up or playing it to any great or lesser extent, but at least it's not a rip-off arcade conversion. And we've seen quite a few of those. So at least it's not that bad. At least it attempts to do what it set out to do and be fair to the people who bought it. What did you think? Pretty much the same. It, it's one of the, it's another arcade conversion. It's The C64 is creaking and groaning at the seams to, to try and do this justice. Yeah, blindly. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, and it, re- it really is. And, and fair play. I put fair play to Chris Butler. And once again, you've, you know, cramming a quart into a pint pot or whatever the phrase is. You know, you've, you've, you've He's somehow shrunk this down. He's got some crazy shrink ray, and and yeah, he's managed to get the the entire thing in there as such as it is. It's very grey. Um, I did notice. I mean, yeah, it lacks very a lot limited. Of the, yeah. it, it lacks a lot of the colour. The 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 um the buildings are big squares, aren't they? The big squares just coming at you, and everything's yeah. just big squares. There's a lot of big squares coming at you. There is. Um, <laughs> and the tanks are big squares with a smaller square on top of them for a turret. There's a lot of squares coming at you in this. And it's fair enough. It looks, you know, it's, it's if you squint, it's a decent version of the arcade. The best, I did like the music on the title screen. However, it's just 49 seconds long and don't loop. That annoyed me. I felt like, I felt like uh, you know, giving him David Whittaker's address so he could uh, learn a thing from the master <laughs> of the 49-second loop. Um, yeah. You know, loop it. <laughs> just go back to beginning. Anyway, um, my my main problem was with the fresh refresh rate. I kept dying because bullets would just appear in front of me, to, and I didn't have time to react. And, and, and I think that was the problem with it. So the problem, and the, so other home versions gave you five lives, giving you three here, and there are extra lives to pick up. But I don't think I ever got one. I don't think I ever got no, you, one. You need to get pretty far into it to get. Yeah, one. which is ridiculous. So I found that it was just a bit too punishing for me. So I kept having to do that opening gray crawl through the thing and having to hold down f7 as well to go faster it does make you go faster like in the arcade game you can hold down a button to go faster and speed up and slow down i think in the other versions you hold down fire and push up and down um to go faster and slower i think this could have done with that or could you know i don't know just made it go a bit faster but it's a bit strange and when you get to the um the boat at the end of the the sort of last level trying to avoid stuff because with i'm trying to hold f7 to duck back and forward and slow down and speed up and it's it's just a bit too much and and it just kept coming and i found it quite dull after a while but that's like you said and like we've said about a lot of these when you rip out all the bells and sega whistles it's a bit of a dull experience these things there's a lot of stuff moving but it's just not particularly very interesting to actually play and i've I've, like you i've found the arcade a dull and vapid affair mostly i don't i'm not a big fan of these into the screen blasters i find them just tedious so the hydraulics are a novelty on the arcade aren't they you get in it and wow i'm moving with the seat and that soon wears off yeah very much so yeah when it just it it hampers it hampers the play (laughs) i don't like things that hamper my play yeah, so I'd much rather play the sort of stand-up version, and and I never particularly was a big fan of Thunderblade. It's all right. This is an okay. It's it's probably the best, and fair, fair enough to Chris Butler. It's the best you're going to get of the arcade on the season. Yes, that's, that was my thought. I thought I could have gone in harsh with this, but I thought, do you know what? Um, that's it. That's probably about as good as you're going to get it on a C64 yeah. with the limited palette, with limited sprites and everything else, and all the 
tech and all the one megahertz yeah. processor you've got, you're not going to get much better. Which is another one of those questions, you know, begging the question of should it have been done? Should it? Well, it makes you wonder. I mean, I think we're almost at the point where they're doing legacy conversions now because this was all 16-bit conversion all the way, wasn't it? All the, it's out on the Amiga, it's out on the ST, I think. It is, yeah. It's on everything, you know, isn't it? Yeah. So I think it's just for completeness. They're just doing it on everything to make well, the, it as much I mean, money as they can. Cause I'm, yeah, because obviously there's an Amstrad version, the Spectrum version, and, and I guess that the as much as we like to think, oh, there's a certain point where people are switching over, there was still a huge market for the Spectrum Amstrad Commodore 64 yeah, yeah, machines at this point. So millions of people had them. So you would be fooled not to get these versions out on them yes, from a business point indeed. of view. But then it's like, you're flogging something that you know you have to squint i suppose at the time you know we were like oh look it's thunderblade but like is it yeah anyway we'd have been like oh look it's thunderblade yeah exactly it wasn't it was never something that i in all my people i spoke to or anything like that sort of thing nobody ever went oh thunderblade's in the arcade go down to the arcade play thunderblade nobody like you're going down to play golden axe or double dragon or you're going down to it was the big games you know those those games none of this thunder no one gave a shit about thunderblade no, and it would have been an expensive one as well. They, the, anything with hydraulics on, add an extra fifty p on just for the yeah ride. The hydro- hydraulic tax. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not yeah. for me. Not for me either. There you go. But uh, uh, the best you're going to get on the sixty four, and so fair play, Chris Butler, to fit all it in sixty four. Yeah, it's just yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just the original's not that great. There we go. That's our first one, Thunderblade. Let's move along into our next one. And it's another arcade conversion. I didn't know this was an arcade conversion. I'd never heard of it. But it is. And this is Guerrilla War. This is £9.95. Graham, this is from Sentient Software. They did did Artura. Yay. And on to our next game. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just move along. Okay. Oh, Jesus. Guerrilla War. So this was originally an arcade game by SNK. Again, released like Thunderblade in 1987. Now, there's a really strange story behind this. I don't know if you know this. Really odd, sort of, in Japan, this was named Guevara. And there's a reason for that, because the story in the Japanese version had you playing as Che Guevara. Okay. Um, Never expected that, but okay. Che Guevara and Fidel Castro are your two characters in this, in the the Japanese (laughs) arcade version. And you're trying to take down... Yeah, and you're trying to take down the tyrannical dictator of Cuba, Fulgencio Batista, in the Cuban Revolution. Yeah. That's what this so game is based on. Historical biopic arcade. I know. Unusual. Who knew? Because um, Batista was been backed by the United States at the time, and you know, corrupt regime and CIA involved, and they wanted to do yeah, and the politics. revolution and blah blah blah. There's a really good entry in this in the book Arcade Imperfect uh, by Jerry Ellis and Andrew Fisher, because that's where I read this, and I went and had a look as well. So I'd never because I'd never heard of this game before. So there's a, a nice little write up about it in there. Um, but as the game reached the West, as one can imagine, the story was rejigged, shall we say, to an, an unnamed dictator, some random Caribbean um, island, and two unnamed protagonists. Can't have some filthy politics in our games. So uh, there you go. So it was just uh, all, all the actually interesting stuff was just ripped apart. Fresh off the back of Ikari Warriors, we have another game in that mold here with Guerrilla War. In the arcade, this followed the same kind of control system as Ikari Warriors with a joystick for moving that also allowed you to rotate as well as to aim in eight... Uh, allowed you to rotate as well as to walk in eight different directions. So you could walk to the right, mm-hmm. aim top left, and you know you could do all that sort of stuff. That's how this worked. It was two-player... Um, you can play solo with another player, and you were tasked with making your way through the various jungles and towns that constitute the game and blasting anything that comes in your way. Essentially, 
it's another commando variant, Ikari Warriors variant. This one does scroll to the side at certain points, making the game feel a little larger than its forebears because they only had, obviously had, they had the vertical only scrolling. So it's similar to other things we've seen, um, other commando variants we've seen recently. I can't remember any of them off the top of my head, but we've seen some. There was that island one, which was uh, isometric. And then there was another one as well, which we played, which had a bit of scrolling left and right. But anyway, as you make your way along, extra weapons can be picked up, such as bazookas and flamethrowers. And you can even get into tanks and let rip, just like you could in Ikari Warriors. You know, seriously, if you played Ikari Warriors, then you'd be very, very familiar with this. It's it's a yeah, very similar type of game. Um, so knowing that a fairly decent port of Ikari Warriors was made for the C64, you might have some high hopes that similarly decent work could be done here. But did I mention they did Artura? Unfortunately. Yeah, this is not good. And I mean that in a way where the words not good I use as a replacement for the words, this is one of the worst things that's been my misfortune to experience. <laughs> Upon loading, you get an okay tune from Jonathan Dunn. It starts off really quiet and then just builds it up a little bit. It's, it's all right, though. Um, and, you know, a, a quite boring title screen. Yeah, you get to choose, and you get a load of options, each on their own screen. So the first thing you do, you get to choose from one or two players. Um, and then... The next screen, you get whether you want to play with keys, normal joysticks, or the Cheetah 125 special joystick. So I'd never heard of this. So I've uh, heard of it. Well, it's, it's option three, and I was like, why is that there? So I went and had a look around, and supposedly the Cheetah 125 special was a joystick that offered the ability to rotate whilst moving in another direction, okay. just like the arcade stick. Just like controlling the arcade. Okay. Which would have been useful to try, but without that joystick and there's no option to choose it in Vice, I was unable to give it a go. But it's certainly there. Um, it took a little while to find some information on it because it was 125 plus is what you can generally find on the internet. But I did find some information that said the 125 plus special allowed rotating as well. Okay. Wow. Um, I don't know whether it's only available for the Spectrum, but it's, there's the options here. I don't know because it seems to or everything be listed out for the Spectrum one to eight K plus. It's got it's like got the the nine pin input, but it's also got like a secondary one which plugs in as well. Mm. So I, I don't know how it works, Weird. but anyway, it's got rotation. It's got it. Once you've selected how you want to play it, you can then pick whether you want to control it normally or with rotate mode, and then you can pick music or sound effects, and it's into the game. And the horror of war is fully upon us in all its yellow glory. Um, the first thing you'll notice are the chunky, ugly sprites and backgrounds, then the sluggishness of the controls, and then the fact that this is barely playable, as enemies fire way faster than you can and fire across narrow tracks, making progress almost impossible. First bit you'll do is you'll walk down a narrow track and three enemies will just appear and you'll be dead. Yep. And then you'll you'll maybe kill some of them, because you'll you'll press fire, and then your Commodore 64 will go, what? Yeah. What? Sounds about I'll right. Fire. Yeah, we're out of fire. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and then it'll fire loads of bullets. And then you, by that point, you're dead. So it doesn't matter. And then there's there's two setups. You've got a really narrow point. There's two set up firing diagonally across it. You can't get past them. The bullet's too fast. You're too big to get past in the gap. Dead. Um, so, yeah, it's just a nightmare. Um, the extra weapons you can pick up, because you pick up from shooting things, uh, they just act like bigger bullets. So it's just bigger yellow balls or bigger black balls. And that's <laughs> what it is. The grenades do no damage unless they land mm. on someone. I mean, that's not a grenade. If it landed yeah, next to me, it's gonna, it's gonna, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just rubbish. If you've chosen so to use the rotate method of control, then a whole new world of horror opens up to you as you now have to use the B and V keys to rotate your player as well as the Commodore key for bombs. Why not space like every other bloody game? And then use the joystick as per normal to move and fire. So that's B, V, space, joystick, and fire. No. To try and control this nightmare of a thing. It's like Twister, finger Twister. <laughs> 
It's just, what? who thought this was a good idea? Like, yeah, that'll work. Somebody with six fingers. Just, oh, the control scheme is an absolute nightmare. When you combine this with a terrible level design, the fact the enemies fire at you as soon as they appear on screen, with bullets that are impossible to avoid, the jerky scrolling, the awful sprites and backgrounds, what we have here is something that very well may give Double Dragon a run for its money in terrible arcade ports. This is a real stinker. In every way a game could stink. It's awful. Truly awful in every way. I could have written loads on this just about how bad this is, but this is one of the worst things it's, you know, that has tr- floated across my transom in quite some time. <laughs> I hated this. I couldn't believe it when it started. I was actually sat here for a while going, no, this can't look this bad. No. Yeah. And then I moved up and the first load of enemies come on. I was dead and I couldn't move and I tried to get a bit further and it's dead and it was horrible and it's flashing. Then it put me back to the beginning and I was was turned off. No, done. Awful game. Awful, awful on every level. The arcade game, which you had to play of, is all right. You know, it looks just like a chunky version of Ikari Warriors. It's got that Ikari Warriors look. It looks exactly like Ikari Warriors, as you'd expect it to. And considering we had John Twitty's version of Ikari Warriors and we've had Commando and Who Dares Wins and numerous versions of this and, you know, uh, Fernandez must die. There's no reason that this is this bad. This is, a, you know, it takes a special kind of talent to make this this bad. Well done. This is awful. I hated this. What about you? Oh, it's dreadful. This is dreadful. Yet again, we have a terrible arcade con version. Con being the operative term here. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Golf <laughs> clap, I think, for that golf clap. Um, substandard graphics, bad scrolling, terrible sprites stupidly coloured backgrounds and borderline invisible bullets. That's no way to go through life, son. (laughs) It's not. The audio again. Okay, the audio was okay. But come on, really? Really? 1989? This is rubbish. This is just rubbish. And I ain't heard of the arcade either, anyway. I don't think there's any excuses left for the way this is made. I mean, there's no way you've created this and you stand back and go, that looks great. That never happened. No way. No way. (laughs) It did not happen. No. Nobody is that blind. This looks terrible. Horrible black squiggles on yellow for pathways. Then you've got a, an, an equivalent of more squiggles on brown for road edge and black squiggles on green for trees and grass. Yeah. It's, just, it's so yes. terrible. I can draw better than that, and I'm rubbish at drawing. You so, are. I mean, and I suppose at the end of it all, does it matter? Well, it does matter a bit. I mean, the sprite is bad, really, your sprite is really badly drawn on next to invisible backgrounds that's terribly animated, sluggish, and unpleasant to control. You will die all the time, as you rightly point out, because not only can you not see the bullets, you can't avoid them anyway. So you just find yourself dead. And he does a really weird animation which when he dies, which <laughs> made me laugh loads. Yeah, um, it does. It's maybe worth loading up just to watch him go, eh, yeah, he sort of crumpled <laughs> turn sideways. It's like, eh, eh, eh. It's like, oh, just rubbish. Um, and you can't shoot either pro- properly because for some reason there's a delay between you pulling the trigger and then the bullet going, okay. So <laughs> it's d- awful. It's dum-dum bullets from bloody Roger Rabbit. <laughs> it what is. This is. Absolute garbage of the highest order. And now I looked at the arcade as well on the old YouTube. And it's one of those long, thin screen deals, isn't it, where it's kind of the ratio yeah, yeah. is on its, you know, uh, whatever it is, nine, yeah. nine to 16, whatever that was. And though far from exciting from the look of it anyway, there was a game in there with half-decent graphics. That's an SNK game, so it's not going to be terrible, is it? This conversion is so far from that. And that didn't look amazing but it's so far from that it defies belief you couldn't have made a worse game unless you you know you, if you tried i mean mm. this is if this is the kind of thing you'd have done by accident you no know? and the, and i think to myself okay and I, I, I didn't know about the artura thing till when you said it so i thought well maybe it was just you know maybe it's some young guys having to go you've done this before <laughs> this is terrible this is like you've, you, 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 you know not only have you made a really bad game you've followed up with an even worse one 
This is a ripoff and a terrible thing. <laughs> £9.95. I know. Just, it's such a shocker. Thank God it's an arcade no one would have heard of. Got 19% as well, which is way too high. Way too way high. Way too high. 0. 0.0 is what it deserves. Yeah, so it's, it's utterly awful. crap. Yeah, rubbish. Hated it. Hated everything about it. I never want to see it again. <laughs> no. No, we're officially broken up now, Gorilla War. We're broken up. We're not seeing each other. We're not even mates. Yeah, this is another... Um, I mean, it reminded me of Gunsmoke. Yeah, it's in that camp. You know, It's in a very elite camp of utter crap conversions there. Yeah, yeah. But it is bad, like bad, bad. I mean, kind of bad, bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so an, bad. An, an, another, another strongly fought uh, end, I know, of, end of the same year issue. awards. I didn't think that it was possible to make a worse conversion than, than Double Dragon or maybe, you know, Karnov and those kind of games. Honestly, Gorilla War came along and went, yes, we can. <laughs> Keep finding ways. Are they trying to outdo each other for how bad they can make these things? Hold my badly drawn brown pipe with black lines <laughs> yeah. to imitate waves in it. <laughs> I'm just going to turn sideways. Uh. <laughs> As I tried to drink it. Oh, uh, uh. Uh. <laughs> rip off, rip off. That's what it was. Yeah, dreadful. Guerrilla War. Awful. Yeah. Let's speak no yep. more of Guerrilla War. No more now. Let's move on. And for our last one in this park, we've only got six games uh, this week again, just to round out February. Uh, it's over to you, Graham. And in the immortal words of Paul McCartney, Tell us all about Live and Let Die. Oh, Live and Let Die. When you were young and your heart was an open book, Adrian, did you used to say Live and Let Live? Because you, you won't have to play in this. You know you did. <laughs> After playing this game, you won't say that. No, I, can tell I won't. You. Um, so this is published by Dumark. Domark. It was copyright elite for reasons that will come very clear very soon. Um, this was designed by Bob Thomas mm. and Peter Cook. You'll remember them from their games, Buggy Boy and such. Um, and also, coded by Dave Thomas, the graphics Bob Thomas. This is a whole Thomas showdown, isn't it? The Thomases are involved. Good old, hey, well, it's the Thomases, Bob, Dave, and, well, it's Bob and Dave. And the, no, the music no, was, P- I noticed as well, look at this. So you got Bob, the design was Bob Thomas and Peter Cook, and the code was Dave Thomas and the music Mark Cook C. So it's, t- I don't know, maybe there's just some alignment of the stars all came maybe. together, didn't it? One odd thing this is, Adrian, odd. Odd is a word I use very rarely at least for this podcast quite a lot recently. Odd. I suppose, okay, maybe it's better late than never, I guess, right? <laughs> okay. But well. the, film Live, <laughs> the film Live and Let Die is a 1973 James Bond movie starring Dusty Moore, Jane Seymour, Yafit Koto, <laughs> and Jeffrey Holder as Baron Samady. Dusty um, Moore. <laughs> he's not quite the as dusty in this one to be fair no no he's, 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 he's you know he's, he's a bit more pristine yeah he's, he's fresher he's, he's fresh off the back of the saint isn't he on this still as sleazy though he undoes a woman's dress with his magnetic watch true true he does he does he also kills a snake with a cigar and some aftershave he, he seduces a tarot reading woman <laughs> by sub- replacing every card in her deck with the lovers he does yeah that's uh, Jane Seymour's character yeah he does in fact how many decks did he have to buy to just take them all out and make one with the lovers in <laughs> You only get one per deck. The first card he turns over is the uh, the fool, and then she gets him to choose another one, and he turns over the lovers, and he goes, that's going to be us. <laughs> God, you, you are properly on it here. <laughs> anyway, um, just so you know, just so we can be clear, because since they've called it Live and Let Die, we've got to at least mention what it's about, because... You know, when we get to the game, you won't, you'll have forgotten all that. <laughs> True. Um, the storyline involves a Harlem drug lord known as Mr. Big, who plans to distribute two tons of heroin for free to put rival drug barons out of business. Just as a side note, bad business plan. Just, okay. <laughs> and then become a monopoly supplier. So a, a, 
Best bad, still bad. I think bad business plan. It's a loss leader. It's like putting the fruit and veg at the front of the at the front of your supermarket. It's a loss leader. Get them in, and then we can uh, hook them in. Don't with give free it away for heroin. free. Free. Yeah, you can't. That's, that's his plan. Is to now put everyone else out of business first by giving it away for free. Doesn't that put you anyway? Just, shh. No more worrying about that. <laughs> anyway, Mister Big is revealed to be the alter ego of Doctor Kananga, a corrupt Caribbean dictator who rules San Monique, a fictional island where opium poppies are secretly farmed. Bond is investigating the deaths of three, three British agents, leading him to Kananga, and he is soon trapped in a world of gangsters and voodoo as he fights to put a stop to the drug baron's scheme. Ababo, indeed. Ababo! Ah. <laughs> I'm going to interject loads of those into this review, by the way, just so you know, there's going to be loads of Good. Bo- little Bond sounds creeping in. Ababo! Um, so, you know... Um, the film is one of the most popular Bond movies of the 70s, if not the most popular. Ably assisted by an amazing opening theme from Paul McCartney in Wings and the weird voodoo overtones that are replete through the film. Also, it's horribly black exploitation, of course. The bad guy, it's called Mr. Big, and he enters um, a place you know, full of diverse characters as the only white guy. And then yeah, just, does. just really gammon-based white guy stuff. <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> It's, it's, honestly, I've watched it very recently, and I can tell you, it's 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 not great for representation in any way. No, no one's coming out of this good. Nobody, nobody. Anyway, you know what? Nineteen seventy-three. Let's park it there. In the film, there is a very famous boat chase sequence where Bond races a speedboat across the Louisiana Bayou, and he's chased by the drug lord's men. It's one of those classic Bond chase sequences, and since it's the seventies, you know it's full of actual speedboats being thrown around off cranes and smashing into each other. Very, very famous. That also includes the very famous Sheriff Pepper who is played by a guy called Clifton and James, who you remember um, is principally a character that kind of surfaces in a number of different films around this time in different guises. He's Sheriff Pepper here, and he appears in another Bond movie um, in a cameo, but he's also almost the sheriff out of the sort of um, Smokey and the Bandit type movies, that kind of character. What you, the tarnation you're doing here, that kind of thing. He's a man with it's a golden gun, isn't it? Turns up in this one, yes. the, the car, the car, just the car jump. Yeah, which is an amazing stunt. Amazing, amazing stunt. He didn't shatter into a dust ball when he landed because he was brittle by that point. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so all of that makes you know sense. That it makes sense, I guess, to make a game about that boat chase sequence sixteen years later. Well, it does if you've previously made Boogie Boy or you played Lloyd Blasters or Overlander. Certainly does then. Mm. Anywho, M has given you the top secret mission: find Mister Big and don't come back until you do. Now, I don't believe M has ever said it like that. He's kind of a posh, you know, posh sort of aristocratic sort of guy, isn't he? he doesn't go. Find Mr. Big and don't come back, Bond. Anyway, don't do that. Anyway, Q has given you his latest gadget. Be very careful with it, 007. It's the fastest and most dangerous speedboat ever made. <laughs> he never said that either. These Whoever wrote these scripts for this bit, this is off the game blurb, did not ever watch that movie. <laughs> nope. Just to make sure you find Mr. Big, we have arranged some practice sessions. Some. <laughs> you. Um, for you in extreme conditions you'll go from the desert to icebergs before we let you loose in Florida Mr Big's home country that's not his own country just saying he lives on an island (laughs) stupid idiots good luck 007 because you're going to be going to the wrong place and all those lessons you're going to learn driving through the icebergs aren't going to help you in the Louisiana bayou that you're driving around in a boat in the film 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 Anyway, I don't remember the film now. <laughs> the game is essentially three training missions and an actual mission. That's never a good thing, is it? No. Three people and one more of anything. Never a good. That's never worked out as a good combination for anything. It's a bit stupid, isn't it? 
You start the game by choosing which of these you'll attempt, and then the game will begin. Imagine a speedboat version of Boogie Boy or Road Blasters, and that's exactly what you have here. The boring title screen has the logo, credits, and you press fire to begin. From there, you get a graphic of the Earth in some kind of computer window. I'm guessing they're trying to make it, to make it bondish. Um, and an arrow for you to choose your lovely course. Options such as practice course, North Pole training exercise, Sahara Desert training exercise. They're all <laughs> going to be very useful for you in the Louisiana Bayou. And then you could do the mission, New Orleans. None of your practice courses will have helped you at any point or in any way. No. So that's the actual only actual level in it that's to do with the film, by the way, New Orleans. And the boat chase isn't well, it is in a bayou, I suppose, in there. So maybe that's tiny. But that's that's the only level that's actually a game challenge. So anyway, okay. You will press fire and then uh, to select and a scroll will go across the screen, um, annoying you because it's so overlong and unskippable just before the game displays. And then another ditty plays, which will also annoy you slightly. Um, mm-hmm. The game is a racer at heart. Instead of roads, we have water in the middle with banks of green and some kind of scenery on the horizon. Uh, above that, some sky. And at the top, your score and high score. Slap bang in the middle of the water is your boat sprite, which does at least look like a speedboat from the back. So it's in a buggy boat. So... <clears throat> It's in a Boogie Boy Road Blasters pole position type camera view. Give you a clue where we're heading. That's the top three quarters of the screen. The UI at the bottom consists of a panel, um, kind of a panel effect for your boat with missiles indicated. You have three. Handy that they just made a display with three missiles on it. Um, Mm. A speedometer in MPH. Mm. A fuel gauge, the 007 symbol. Always handy to put that on a boat for a special agent, secret agent, (laughs) isn't it? Put his name on it. Uh, And then a graphic, some graphics representing your throttle. The tiny, tiniest throttle on the biggest speedboat ever. (laughs) So tiny. <laughs> Move it with your fingers, your thumb and finger. Move your finger. <laughs> I'm going so fast. Um, anyway, so you push up to speed up and down slows you down. Once you're at max speed, you'll just stay there, a bit like another game that we've mentioned before. Left and right will swing your boat left and right in the water and fire will shoot your gun. Down and fire, stupid, stupid down and fire will shoot your missiles. We had that something else. There was Road some other games. Was it Road Blasters? Overlander. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. remember them. <laughs> Roadblasters. Boogie Boy. Uh, Overlander. Roadblasters. And Overlander. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here they are, sunning themselves in the North Pole, Sahara, <laughs> and the train, other training missions. And a whole other load of missions you ain't ever going to do because they ain't going to help you. Um, as you speed up the river, as you speed up the river, it will bend, just like the roads in Boogie Boy, and various enemies will <laughs> zoom towards you in similar ways to they did in, in Road Blasters. Um, boats, mines, obstacles, and riverside artillery. All in the, it's all in the water and all looking to blow you up, or most of it. You can shoot these or fire your missiles at them or just plain old avoid them if you want or if you can. There are also supplies on the water for extra missiles or fuel, and periodically a helicopter will fly across and drop more supplies. We'll always drop them in the most inconvenient place possible or not at all, <laughs> if you already have them. You have limited lives, and so you must travel down the river avoiding, shooting, collecting until you reach the end which will feel like never, let me tell no, you. It goes on forever. It feels like never. It goes on forever. If Bond, if this was the Bond film, you'd be sat there for three days. Because <laughs> this ever end, this is the longest boat chase ever. Um, and also, by the way, a boat chase implies that there are things behind you chasing you, right? Mm-hmm. Not running, zooming towards you. That's not a chase. They're, they're, they're obstacles when they do You're that. You're chasing them. Chases if they're behind you, chasing you. Well, they're not coming towards you. They're, they're trying to get They're trying to get away from you. You're just catching them up. But you're not. They're, they're <laughs> aiming towards you. Anyway, it's all moot. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all moot. So, stupid. Just stupid. Anyway, there are exciting additions to rivers like narrow parts, tunnels, embankments, etc. A bit like the one you like saw in Boogie Boy. Boy. <laughs> yeah, and also logs in the water, which you can jump to, put your boat in there. A bit like the 
things in Boogie Boy. Um, and generally, that's it. The levels seem to meander and repeat and feel bloody endless. Um, there are periodic things like submarines for reasons. Submarines don't generally go in small rivers because they're so massive and the rivers are often <laughs> not deep enough for them. Yeah, the Louisiana Bayou, like it's, it's not known for its um, <laughs> sub, it's sub- submariners. Yes. <laughs> It's not, it's not what you'd What's call massively exploratory. Is that an alligator? Is that a crocodile? No, it's a Russian sub. It's a submarine. Strangely, there's no alligators or crocodiles in this sequence, which is odd for because that's the mainstay of that part of the film. Um, he runs but, across you know, them. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't, you don't generally come across torpedoes and submarines in that bit. Um, there's also lock gates, which you can destroy with your missiles. <laughs> Stupid. It's um, not a canal. I know it is now. What's going um, on? And and walls that you must dodge, and they're not much fun. Also, there's points in the game where you have no missiles, and um, because you'll have used them, and if you haven't replenished them, you can't get past those bit, and you just crash. Yeah, seems a bit silly. You should be able to machine gun them, even if it takes a bit longer, but you can't. No. Nope. Um, Mark Cooksey provides some relatively jaunty music. Notably, though, not a version of Live and Let Die. Seems a bit stupid, that. Anyone would think that this music was for another game completely. You think? Um, there is a version of the Bond music in there, sort of. Okay, it's in there, sort of. It doesn't doesn't sound like it should, does it, anyway? Oh, whatever. All in all, this is clearly a reskinned Boogie Boy variant, or at least something based on the same engine. In fact, it's, it was never a Bond game, really. This was originally to be a game called Aquablast. At the time, Dumark wanted to make Bond games and so, because it has a vague look of the Bayou boat chase in um, Live and Let Die. It had zero, 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 007 slapped on it and became a um, Live and Let Die game. Aquablast was a watery Boogie Boy. Nobody wanted that. And so... Ooh. There is no wonder, really, what happened here. Now, there is an interesting aside about all of this. Um, if we just take a, a, a sideways step for a moment to uh, the Games That Weren't website, games, games That Weren't.com, an amazing resource, Aquablast has a mention um, because, obviously, uh, Aquablast was a game that never was because it's, you know, it, it's, a game, it's a game that wasn't um, it, because it became this um, uh, variation of Live and Let Die. I, I don't even want to call it Live and Let Die, really, because it has so little to do with James Bond in any way other than it has the name Live and Let Die and some Bond music on it. You wouldn't know, really. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting quote here. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. Oh, I know the fact you did. I know you did have a chance to look at it. From Dominic Wheatley, mm-hmm. who was the ex-head of Domark. There's a quote here. Now, I don't know what's happened. I don't know at what point when Domark turned into OCP. <laughs> Um, but he goes, he goes full on. Um, he goes, he gets quite angry. I think I, I, I'm feeling his sort of um, <laughs> Dick Jones style rage at this point. He does a bit. And this, this is a direct quote that says, "So Dominic Wheatley, head of, head of Domark, had this to say: Steve Wilcox was the boss of a company called Elite, and they had done a number of coin-op games. In fact, one of the things that happened was we did Star Wars that was based off the coin-op machine, a uh, coin-op machine from Atari. We did such a great job that uh, <laughs> Atari came over to see us and said." We want to put all our coin-ups in one company. We're going to decide which company we want to give all our future coin-ups to, good or bad, for a flat fee. Build a business together. We were thrilled. <laughs> Build a business together. Should do it in that voice from that <laughs> thingy. We were thrilled, but I was more worried about Steve because Steve had done lots of coin-up conversions that, that they said I'd made loads and loads of money out of. Fortunately for me, Steve decided that he didn't need the coin-up guys anymore, that he could do his... <laughs> They could do it on his own, make his own games. We didn't need the licenses. He didn't need the royalties. Steve's business made the wrong decision. (laughs) That line is amazing. It's so good. Steve's business made the wrong. (laughs) I used to call the old man, but but it was always respect. There was respect. I had to kill Bob Martin because he made a mistake. (laughs) 
now it's time to erase that mistake. <laughs> I had to get rid of Steve because <laughs> he made the wrong business decision. <laughs> Steve's business made the wrong decision. Um, he had been making games that people didn't know of. His business simply faded away. <laughs> And he was struggling. Aquablast was a game I thought my business was in. I thought immediately that it was reminiscent of Live and Let Die with the chase scene. I simply said, you give us your game and we'll put a license on it. We'll publish it. And that was that. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Just amazing. <laughs> we'll put a link to the show notes in there. Do I'm not very good at impersonating Dick Jones from, but you know, do your own Dick Jones impersonation. Share them with us if you want. <laughs> I'll happily uh, you know, get them. If you've got a decent recorder, record yourself doing, reading Dominic Wheatley's quote, from the Games That Weren't website for Aquablast in the voice of Dick Jones. Send it to me. We'll probably include that. Anyway, it's a very long-winded diatribe, really, for a game that is pretty rubbish, isn't it? Um, so it's just, you know, it's a Bond game that never was. Not very good. Um, it's really boring and it feels endless. It's not exciting. It's not fun. And three of the four missions lead nowhere anyway. The graphics for your boat, okay. But everything else is dreary and the same thing over and over and over and over again. There's so little to do with James Bond here. It all feels pointless and needless. The sound and game are just the same thing over and over again until eventually you get to the end. There's no excitement, no drive, no real point. Just get in a boat and don't hit stuff. End. A license clearly designed to grab money with little or no thought for what they were doing. The idea of a boat racing game, okay, that isn't a bad thing, um, but it's not what this is. Instead, we end up with this dreary boat trip, and it reminds me of a really boring holiday to the Norfolk boards. <laughs> What about you? Yeah, um, just I'm gonna just gonna caveat what I'm about to say. Something that I wrote all this before I knew anything about Aquablast. So anything. So this was all written. I just played the game and then wrote this. And then you said, "Oh, it's a reskin." And I went, "Oh, I went and had a look." So all this is written beforehand. So I, so what I'd put Hilarious. is how much of the film is the boat chase? Where's all the rest of the film? Why am I boating around in different locations? Why are there so many training <laughs> missions? Why is this game just a reskin of Boogie Boy with some shooting added? Even the bloody tunnels are practically the same. This is yep. just another Bond misfire with one element taken from the film and blown up to fit an engine that was used in another game. Stop making shit Bond games. When did Bond <laughs> go boating in the Saharan Desert or live in Live and Let Die or the North Pole? He doesn't. If you want to make a boat, if you want to make a boat shooting game, fine. Just don't slap the Bond name on it to sucker people in. Bah. Yep. Yes. I didn't know anything about Aquablast, but it was bloody obvious this was never meant to be a live and let die game because it's not. Adrian, you just made the wrong business decision. <laughs> it's not even the right kind of speedboat. Is it a speedboat? Or is, yeah, no, he's not on one of the yeah, things. It's a, it's a Louis it's a speed, no, it's a speedboat in the it's film. I watched boat, it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, but it's, God, it's, it's bloody. Yeah. This is just. Why are we in the Sahara? <laughs> what point Why did they build embankments? Why did they build slopey embankments on the side of a river? In the Louisiana Bayou. Yeah, in handy, handy places where you go over icebergs. I'm like, what? What is this? <laughs> it's stupid. It's so stupid. It's clearly Buggy Boy with a different vehicle in it. Yes, clearly. I mean, yes. And it, th th this got 70% is a joke. Uh, Unbelievable. I mean... Okay. Unbelievable. Yeah, rubbish. Just rubbish. There we go. Live and let die. Let it die. <laughs> in this ever-changing world in which we live in... <laughs> Makes you give in and cry, <laughs> live and let die. Yeah. Yes, just die. I think uh, Domac, Domac's business made the wrong decision <laughs> to release this. Anyway, there we go. Three crackers <laughs> to start this week off. That's it. Absolute uh, crackers. Yeah, absolute crackers. Uh, we're going to go away, take a quick break. We will be back. Um, we've got film and TV to get through from February 1989. So please do stick around and uh, hopefully enjoy what's coming up. And we're back. Welcome back. 
Um, this is film and television in February 1989. I am pleased to say that um, in a change from normally being with us for the music, uh, we've been joined by our regular contributor and guest, Mr. Gary Wilson, is in the house. How are you, Gary? Good evening. I'm uh, I'm very well. I'm glad you've invited me on for this uh, this section to discuss uh, art and culture. And I'm going to pretend that I'm on the late review. Circa 1989 with Kirsty Walk. <laughs> you can pretend anything you want. Yes, you can. Um, just but, switch his mic off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let, it, let, him, let him think he's talking. Yeah. Uh, have you had a good day, Gary? Uh, it's been very busy. Week? Very busy today. My daughter's birthday, eighth birthday. Uh, very busy, very busy at work. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, it's all good, but I'm glad to be here. I've banished the kids for making noise that's on nice, on a, nice on her birthday it's she has been banished <laughs> on her, get out <laughs> on her birthday she's now been banished upstairs upstairs and uh, uh yeah cool so they're happy for that i'm happy for that you're happy for that we're all good uh let's discuss culture and crap 80s telly <laughs> let's let's get some uh, let's get on with that then right 5th of february at 6 p.m the world's first commercial dbs system sky television goes on the air Three new channels, Sky News, Sky Movies, and Eurosport, all launch, as well as the flagship Sky Channel, later renamed Sky One. Do you have read this before? But anyway. But you're not telling me that America... I'm presuming DBS is, what? what's that, digital broadcasting system or digital, something? Yeah, it must yeah. be it. It must be So, it. you know, America had had cable for years and years and years. And yeah, but wasn't compatible to, with my system. So. Not that compatible <laughs> with my system. Yeah. And the cables wouldn't stretch from the US to the UK. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So they decided to put it, instead of cable, they've obviously decided to go via satellites, I guess, something like that. And we've ended mm-hmm. up with Sky. And here we are 40 years later, whatever it is, 30 years later. And weirdly Still enough, there. it's strange, because obviously that was the um, the appearance of Sky dishes, Sky satellite dishes on the side of loads yes, of people's houses. And now part of their Sky glass advertising is going... Yeah, Sky Glass advertising going, no more dishes. It's only taken 40 years. Yeah. yeah 30-odd no years, dishes. sorry. I, th- I, think there's a, I think there's a thing there about how a, a certain company controls vast waves of uh, media. Uh, you know, it's the same in America. There's about three, isn't there, in America? There's like three of them, Comcast and yep. so on. And over here, we've got yep. Sky and Virgin, and that's basically it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tr- it's true. But, I mean, they were an amalgamation, weren't they, Sky, of BKSB yeah, and Sky... Sky whatever it was. So there was two things merged together. Unfortunately, your Squarial wasn't compatible with Sky TV, yeah. so you had to get the new mini dish. Remember, this is the era of the mini dish. It's not, it's not like, because before that, there was all sorts of weird shaped dishes. Do you know, there's a guy who lives not too far from me who's got a satellite dish that looks like the one out of, like you could communicate with people on Pluto with it. It's, it's ginormous, <laughs> absolutely massive. But they've got these little mini dishes. And of course, then all the jokes began about things on the side of houses and they seemed to pop up everywhere, didn't they? I they thought did. there was more channels when it launched. But we, we never, you know, we never had it. It's still going, isn't it? So. Yeah, well, we never had it in our house. We same, had nothing, never. nothing. We, no. we watched no. those three, four channels. That yeah. was it. Never no, had same, this stuff. yeah, same. We, we used to, didn't we used to go around someone's house to watch the wrestling on Sky? Yeah, that was uh, my friend's next door neighbour. Yeah, we, 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 gate, we gate crashed basically a complete stranger's <laughs> house and sat getting fed and entertained by the, her mother. Just to, to watch the wrestling, exactly. Cup of tea. Do you want a cup of tea? Cup of tea, everyone. Yeah, everyone. Come on, Undertaker. Actually, it's pretty Undertaker, wasn't it? Yeah, come on, come on, Ultimate Warrior. I think I went. I think I went once. Found the whole experience really <laughs> weird and never went back. Yes, unfortunately, we didn't. We it. went back quite a lot. Yeah, there were certain juvenile issues going on there. I think. Yeah, I think yeah. There was well. there was a girl that was you know there was a girl. I mean that's that was it. <laughs> that was I was I had none of that. Yeah. I was none no, of it. Anyway, but we did <laughs> anyway. do that, and also um, 
as an aside, of course, the other two people that we knew, one used to provide us with regular video recordings of the music videos because MTV was on there. And the other person mm. was the, when it became, when it was finally on Sky One, which was The Simpsons, of course, we used to watch a lot of that via video VHS recordings because you know, we didn't Every have the Sunday old Sky. night, bring them around, Ronnie. Yeah, my dad point blank refused to acknowledge that Sky was a thing and that mini dishes would be ever be put on the house he wasn't that nope so that was the end of that yeah i agree with him 11th of february the australian soap home and away makes its uk debut on itv it is the second networked australian soap on the channel following the short-lived richmond hill uh which was still airing during the afternoon home and away is crucially scheduled in early evening slots of either 5 10 p.m 6 p.m or 6 30 across the itv network and immediately becomes a counterpart series to BBC One's Neighbours, airing at 5.35pm. Scheduling continues 30 years later with both series now in the same slots, but together on Channel 5. I, I think it's curious about Home and Away Neighbours is that I think the reason for the success is that they presented uh, communities as impossibly beautiful and impossibly interesting in the way that UK communities were not. A lot of the people who watched it, I'm sure, were living on housing estates. And here you had <laughs> programmes on the beaches, basically, and in... Mm. A glamorous Australian suburbs uh, with uh, impossibly attractive people. I mean, both home and away, our neighbours, you know, provided us with what was it? Natalie and Brulia, Kylie, Jason, yeah. obviously Jason, uh, and so on <laughs> and so on. And yeah. they were clearly a, a, the bright, breezy counterpart to the very sodden Scottish, Welsh, English soap operas of the day. And that's why they became successful. And I remember watching, Absolutely. we used to watch Home and Away in the late eighties. We'd sit there whatever. And what, and, uh, neighbors. And I remember Graham and I would, like, did we watch the one with Daphne died? No, yes. no, don't die Daphne. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> yes. That was you neighbors. ruined that painful, <laughs> harsh moment. You ruined it. And we were, we really, I mean, it was crap. Don't get me wrong. It was absolutely rubbish. But at the same time, it was a bit of a refreshing 20 minutes to watch. We in, made in an between. entire joke out of the fact that Daphne may or may not have been wearing pants. <laughs> Does that when she gave birth? <laughs> yes, she gave probably. Birth something, the road, didn't she? And, this, and there was she something very wrong on. with us. Yeah, anyway. Uh, so having a <laughs> yeah. way, uh, and it's ill, you know, there were, there were you know, like, was it in Home and Away there was Bobby Simpson who's that short uh, brunette woman I was when I was yeah. 17 I was thinking oh she's lovely and then eventually the, I mean all of them Margot Robbie was Margot yeah. Robbie in there Holly yeah. Valance was in there as Holly well. Valance that's, that's what I mean all this, of them. that was the thing wasn't it I mean both Neighbours and Home and Away it was the Minogues Kylie and Danny um, oh god yeah Danny was in there Natalie, well. Natalie and Brulia yeah all, all mm. you know all, all these and we had and, and no disrespect to him, but we had Emmerdale, uh, EastEnders, and uh, Coronation Take the Street. Road. <laughs> Coronation Street. So we had Gail Tilsley, um, you know. Ah. So uh, Deirdre Barlow, for it, goodness' it was, sake. It was, it was just it was just a completely different way of life beaming into our houses that we just it weren't was. used to. The only it Australian was. sort of stuff we'd been used to by that point, remember, was Sons and Daughters and the Sullivans, and none of which was, was yeah. none of which were particularly any other colour apart from brown. Yeah. No, they were very True. brown. Sons and daughters credits were brown. Literally, <laughs> they, they were, were very brown. brown. Yeah, they and, were. Uh, they were. It was, it was it was glamorous and it was interesting and it, and it was you know and they're still it was it, young. They're both going now. They're yeah. still going. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, young. they are. It was just it was just young. It wasn't. It, it wasn't was old people yeah. talking to old people behind a pub about old people things. It would lead to Hollyoaks. And it. I, I was yeah. literally about to say that the knock-on effects of these uh, Australian soaps was the bringing down the age demographic in English soaps. You know, Hollyoaks started it, and even Corey, Stenders, Brookside, yeah, they Brookside, all, yeah. even nowadays, Coronet Street has loads of young people in it. And that's a, 
knock-on effect of home and away and neighbours. You know, mm, it, good. Uh, that's what they brought brought to the table was was glamour. And <laughs> then again, I still can't remember a single home and away storyline. I I know, and you know, Adrian knows that we know that you really liked and maybe even dare I say fancied Hilda Ogden from Coronation <laughs> Street. <laughs> And and let alone that Percy Love, whatever her name was, oh, Phyllis Pierce. Pierce. <laughs> Pierce. We used to absolutely crack up about that woman on Coronation Street. And we used to watch it. And we used to do the impressions, didn't we? We'd go, are you yeah. okay? Are you Gary Love? You all right? <laughs> are you Gary Love? You all right? Percy Love. Percy Love. Yeah, Percy Love. Percy, me knickers are all wet. <laughs> I took them off the washing line. It's bloody raining out there. <laughs> 12th of February. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, 12th of February. ITV launches, uh, you can't laugh at this, ITV launches its Find a Family campaign to help find permanent homes for youngsters in care. This is really bad, isn't it? This is Bleak terrible, isn't TV. it? it I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. I have no memory of it. No, I don't remember watching it, and I couldn't find a single clip of it on YouTube or no. by the old World Wide Web. It, it's as if it's been scratched from uh, and erased from, from anyone's kind of yeah. internet memories. because. It's so okay. So I can't imagine the program. What did they do? Uh, hello, we've got. Uh, uh, I don't know. We've got Jeffrey here. He's from a troubled home. Does anybody want to make a bid on him? Okay. <laughs> oh. The bidding. It sounds a bit like. Uh, well, no, I don't think the bidding. It sounds a bit like that movie Get Out. I just Get imagine out. they're all yeah. sort. Of, yeah, where they're all sort of <laughs> sig- signaling to each other and bidding in secret and silence. It's just. A, I think they I think their their heart was in the right place, trying to rehome youngsters that are in care. Not a bad idea. But, you know, some kind of TV show about it. I don't get that. Well, yeah, the, the UK's version of, I don't know, Fred West. Hello, hello, <laughs> ring, ring. Uh, I'll take two of them. I'll take two of them. <laughs> I'm pretty yeah. sure they'd have been vetted for... Yeah, check, check, check my check my uh, references. I'm sure they're fine. Okay, Fred, we'll be in touch. Let me get your name again, sir. What is it? Fred and Rosemary. Sorry, you didn't catch your surname. Yeah, Rosemary. Got, Rosemary, got... she's lovely. Rosemary, she's lovely. She's got a lovely really garden. Nice. Lots of space lovely for them. Gar- got a patio in the back. <laughs> lovely patios. God's sake. Um, there was, um, moving on, there was a little, there was uh, a weird penchant for tear-jerking TV around the time, that time in the late 80s. So there was loads of Scylla Black sort of getting all watery-eyed and, ah, you haven't met him in 30 years, but here's your Uncle Pete. And that kind of thing. There was loads of that sort of stuff. Christmas Day, Noel Edmonds at two o'clock before Top of the Pops, he'd do his reunite the families and or take a disabled kid on a helicopter flight. Well, it's no different to what they're trying to do there then, really. Uh, you'd be in tears and watery-eyed all over the place before Yorkshire puddings, I'm telling you. The, the thing was about this sort of thing is that it's actually quite stranger than we thought because looking at the Wikipedia for it, it says that it was actually a series of short videos shown during advert breaks between scheduled program slots. The video would appeal for a foster family to a to a homeless child seeking a family. During that same week, there would be a longer program which highlighted the results of the phoning campaign for that week. Here we are with Fred, who's taking Billy. Imagine this is the one you didn't get. Sorry. <laughs> yes, yeah, hosted. Yeah, just say it's hosted by uh, Jim Bowen. Can you imagine? So, uh, yeah, but can you can you imagine they got the kids going like Tommy. We've shown your video to six families and his, his like, face lights up. Nobody wanted you, Tommy. Sorry. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's... <laughs> like the light would shine red on him instead of like, like on oh, that when no. they don't get selected in uh, <laughs> Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> oh, sorry, Tommy. Not this week. It's not right week for you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's terrible, isn't it? Thank, thank the Lord that actually times have changed because this yeah. is just a terrible Thankfully. initiative. Thankfully. Terrible. We are, of course, referring to, we are referring to history, so you know, we're allowed. 
talk about that. Yeah, anyway, 13th of February. <laughs> <laughs> Something a bit brighter. The first ITV Literally. National, <laughs> yeah, the first ITV <laughs> national Weather Bulletin is broadcast. That's weird. I suppose it's national, national. isn't it? Because We didn't need to know what the weather was like anywhere else because nobody travelled. No. But, but note that it's the first <laughs> ITV. It's ITV. Yeah. BBC had the weathermen with their little stick-on uh, clouds. Yes. And, and they were considered things. the place to go with the Met Office, weren't they? So mm, They were... Michael Fish and all that lot. Yeah. I mean, ITV are not exactly covering themselves in glory this week, are they? Well, the thing is, don't forget that before before now, ITV was a very was a just a collection a, of disparate a conglomerate of disparate disparate sort of you know companies. studios serving different parts of the country. ITV was only a yeah. relatively recent thing that it all started to come together Absolutely. under one one banner. So, twenty uh, third of February, some twenty three million viewers tune in to watch wow. the exit. Of the hugely popular character, Den Watts from EastEnders. Grantham, let's well, Leslie Grantham. Grantham filmed his final seasons in the show in the autumn of 1988, but his exit was delayed into 1989 to avoid the show suffering the double blow of losing Den so soon after his former wife, Angie, Anita Dobson, who exited in May 1988. The character falls into a canal after being shot, but the character's exact fate is left unconfirmed, and he would make a return to the show in 2003. So, spoilers, he won't dead. Okay. He wasn't dead, no. And then they did kill him, though, with a bust of Victoria, if I remember correctly. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. yeah uh, one of his ex girlfriends or his woman, he was whatever, took took unkindly to his shenanigans and hit him over the head with a bust of Victoria. Well, yeah. There we go. Chirpy oh, Extenders, always been chirpy. <laughs> <laughs> Have a laugh. Have a laugh at Albert Square. <laughs> now, the question is who was it they replaced Den and Angie with? It was. Because it was Bab oh, Windsor, God. wasn't it? And yeah, then Barbara Windsor. The, and it's the, the, uh, the era Reed. of the Mitchells, isn't it? The Mike Mitchells Reed. era. Mike Reed. Yeah. yeah he, Mike he Reed. was all that one. Yeah. Pet. <laughs> <laughs> God, it's, it's like he's come back. <laughs> if you're in the he's room, dead Mike, as well now as well. If you're in the he's room, Mike, please speak to Leslie us. Leslie Grantham, dead. Uh, Mike Reed, dead. Maybe people who work at the old... Uh, Barbara the Windsor. Old, you know, yeah, exactly. The, the Queen Vic is not a place to go if you're an, an aging like actor. It's a bit of a curse, isn't it? I'd yeah, it's like a pet, it's like pet cemetery down yeah, there. Yeah, that that and they're old. That and they're old. Don't don't no no don't yeah. talk about the old. It's cursed. It's just a cursed. <laughs> it's just cursed, a cursed, cursed place. Set. The Queen's sick. Phil and Grant aren't dead. Not yet. The inside, time's coming. Inside, <laughs> inside they feel totally they're dead. <laughs> it's a curse. He'll Not fold. He'll just fold infinitely. Fold into a small space and just disappear. <laughs> oh, good old folded. Twenty fifth of February, the long-awaited WA heavyweight. Fight, title fight between Britain's Frank Bruno and the USA's Mike Tyson is held at the Hilton Hotel in Las Vegas. Because of the time difference between Britain and the US, the fight is televised in the UK in the early hours of 26th of February. Tyson wins after the referee stops the bout in the fifth round. Surprised it went that long. Uh, presumably it was on Sky. Uh, no, it, it might have been. I can't remember. No, I'll tell you it was, I, tell I don't you. think it was on terrestrial. Um, I don't know. I can't remember where we went to watch it because we were... We was. This is very prescient because... Uh, Mark, who was a member of the demo group that we were a member, that was a, so Mark was, he was very into this because he kept going on and on about one of our scroll texts about how Bruno was a fighter or a boxer and Tyson was a fighter or some <laughs> BS. And we're like, what are you on about, mate? Um, you know, this was never a fair match. Um, if you look back no, at the, if you look back at, and over the history of Mike Tyson, which is something that I've done quite a lot because I find it's quite an interesting character, albeit a nasty one later down the line, obviously, but. At this particular time, he was, uh, you know, without a doubt, the world's greatest boxer at that time, without a doubt. And I mean, unmatched and dangerous in the ring, like, like you know, clubber lang dangerous. 
So that's <laughs> no, to, to put anyone in the ring with him would have been suicide at this point. I, I think Tyson was the closest we got to the filmic version of Rocky. It's an insanely good boxer, and and he just had such a powerful punch. It's you know it's it's Ivan Drago standards of punch power. Yeah. Um, but it, he was an insanely good boxer, and if you look back and look because you can go on YouTube now and look back at all of the fights. Just look at the sort of, there's a, one compilation of all of the various Tyson knockouts. The guy was absolutely unbelievable. He was a monster. He was a and complete to put monster. put Bruno in the ring with him. I mean, all right, Bruno was a fairly accomplished boxer at that point, but he didn't stand a chance. And no, if you watch didn't. the, if you actually watch that match back again, the Bruno Tyson match, which you can do, I think he gets one hit <laughs> and he's just completely yeah. annihilated. I think we said, did we say before that he got, he got his, he got his face punched the other way around or something? I think when we cracked <laughs> a joke like about that, it before. Yeah. <laughs> It's I think fair play. To, I think fair good. fair play to Bruno. Like you said, he was a he was a good boxer, but he was a fairly limited boxer, and he was never gonna never going to bring uh, uh, any kind of defeat to Tyson's shores. So, but you know, Frank Bruno was a was a, was a nice guy. He was lambasted in the press, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But ultimately, he's one of the the good guys from what we can tell. So. Fair play to yep. him for getting in that ring and getting pulverised. Yeah. I mean, he had a massive height advantage over Tyson, but he didn't have a punch-in-the-face advantage, and that's what you well, need. Well, no, uh, Bruno's big problem was that he was never overly aggressive, and obviously Tyson was a pitbull. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, he was. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Anyway, new shows for the month. 5th of February, we had Dolly. I don't know what this is. What was it? It was a TV series with Dolly Parton. Of course he was. was what it? else could it be? It's not about a cloned sheep, is it now? <laughs> could, could or is it? I don't know. I have <laughs> no idea lived. what this was. I never watched it. No, no idea that it existed. Vaguely, vaguely, maybe I knew about it, but um, looking back on it, it was a short-lived kind of attempt. Does by she sing? The, does she sing? She can. Well, she probably yeah. sings. I'm, she sang the theme tune. She didn't sing in the program. Yeah, from I what I can true. tell. You know, I no there's idea. a lot of stuff that's attributed. People don't realize is actually Dolly Parton writing. You want to? I mean, we haven't got time to go through the sheer volume of Dolly Parton written songs, but there are loads and loads and loads. Even daft things like Butterflies, the TV series, that theme soon written by Dolly Parton. And there's so many songs that she's written that are genuinely really good. And also, obviously, the famous "I Will Always Love You." The, the key thing about that is, on the same day in the seventies, Dolly Parton wrote "Jolene" and "I Will Always Love You" on Crazy. the same day. I have trouble like leaving the house twice on the same day. It's like, come on. <laughs> on the same day, she wrote those two incredible songs. I mean, it's just fun. And that's her pension. Have you tried leaving the house dressing as Dolly Parton? Maybe that would help. Uh, oh, my God. Maybe that's it. Hi, everybody. <laughs> just wander through the streets. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure she doesn't sound like <laughs> that. Could, I mean, you could do yeah. that voice. Um, people yeah. would probably ask you to go back home. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, with, and with good cause. <laughs> <laughs> she is lovely. Everyone loves Dolly. And she's the world's yes. biggest giver of books. Her, her, um, she, she is, set up yeah. this charity in America or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah she does um, amazing stuff. She does it over here now and she gives away thousands and thousands of books to kids who actually don't have access to books. So actually Dolly is one of the great heroes of our time, whether you like Jolene or not. Have I you listened Jolene. to the slowed down version of Jolene that's on YouTube? I'd recommend Jolene. you do it. It's, it's, no, not like that, you not like that, you fool. <laughs> someone's just taken the someone's taken the uh, 45 RPM and just slowed it down a bit. It sounds a lot better. I would definitely recommend you go and listen to it. It sounds a lot oh, I'm better. Gonna, I'm going to definitely listen to that. I love it. I would. Dolly. I would. It's really good. 5th of February, Spearfield's Daughter. I can't talk anything about this. Never heard of it. Where did you get this from? Are you getting this from Wiki or something? What the hell is yeah, it? Yeah, Spearfield's Daughter. It was a 1982 novel written by Australian author John Cleary. The book was adapted into a 1986 Australian-Canadian miniseries starring Christopher Plummer. I'm guessing this is that show, isn't it? Cleary's original scripts were rewritten and describes the result as a disaster. 
Oh, well, he's not happy with it. Good Good luck to him. Yeah. No, never watched it. No, No, never heard of it. 6th of February, Sky Star Search. Now, I did watch the clips of this on YouTube. And? And I vaguely remember this program. Never watched it at the time, but I vaguely remember in the the kind of the mists of my memory of seeing clips of this. And it was a very cheap, very kind of, I mean, if you compare this to the X-Fats or the Idol programs nowadays, it looks like it's filmed in a barn. It's just dreadful. The host is... Keith Chegwin and your there was a rotating series of guests who were the judges. And I think Faith Brown was the lead judge and there was a series of judges who joined her. Like one of them was Bernard Manning. Oh, I mean, dear. this is like, what is going on? Oh, good. And the whole set was very, it was almost like it was 30, 40 years past its time because they had a whole bunch of acts that clearly were doing the rounds in the social clubs and the pubs. Did you watch any of these clips? Am I the only one who had to put myself through this? I yeah. didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. You're, what, you're, you're setting me up for a fall here. <laughs> I've gone off and watched all this and no one else has. I feel like this is... Oh. I, I, was, I, I was never going to watch that. <laughs> no. But it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was vaguely entertaining for the 10, 10 minutes as I was watching it. Was there any good uh, Were there any good stars? Did anyone, did anyone no, do anything good? No, there were no good? stars on it. It was like people who just did the Willow Social Club. One of them was called Jenny, Johnny, Robin the Fe- uh, Johnny Reb and the Confederates with a big Confederate flag behind in 1989. Oh, Times have changed. It's like thank God. It's fascinating, and Bernard Manning, that oh, that uh, uh, comedian, was on it. There, there was a great clip once of watching the, one of those clip programs or whatever of Bernard Manning. We told a really crap, horrible, racist, horrible joke, and everyone was like, "Oh, they thought it was hilarious," but a few people wheezing, and then he goes, "Oh, anyway." You can't stop us laughing, can you? You can't stop us laughing. <laughs> you can't stop us laughing. Like, that's all you need is just that. Let's forget your racist diatribes. Exactly. Do you know, it was? Yeah. I think it was Russell Kane that started one of his, I can't know if it was on a live performance or whether it was part of a show he was doing where he starts off by reading out a load of jokes and everyone was laughing and then it turned out he was just reading out Bernard Manning jokes. <laughs> actually, I don't like that guy, but that's actually quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Sky Star search was, if you watch the clips of it on YouTube, and I would suggest your listeners go Don't. away and do so just for the sheer, it looks like it's filmed in, it's it's a different planet. It's a completely different planet. Oh, well. Um, 15th February, The Country Boy. No idea. No, no, no never watched no it. Idea. No, no. Uh, again, 19th February, Laura and Disorder. Cheesy and no. No. Wendy Craig no. nonsense. Fifth, Wendy Craig. If Wendy Craig was in any programme, I'm going to tell you, I would immediately switch it off. Um, 14th February, out on Tuesday, a.k.a. out. I don't know what this was. Right, this, this, I, I didn't know what this was. And then when I, when I searched it, I think I had seen it. It's basically a magazine type programme aimed at homosexual uh, people and the gays and lesbians in society because ultimately they, they were that demographic demographic was not in any way kind of had any programs delivered for them so finally channel four was it channel four i'm presuming it was channel four uh, it must quite have possibly been channel four. i can have a look there was no way it was anywhere else actually no. got around to making programs for this particular group and finally uh, it did i mean don't get me wrong it looked like it was of its time it was a fairly um it looked a little bit kind of dry and a little bit kind of whatever but thankfully it allowed everything else to springboard from there so you know good on them Aye. yeah well it's got to start somewhere exactly i bet it was channel four uh, yes it was I'm, channel four sorry of yes. course it was channel four yeah there you go yes it was channel four 15th february mr fix it <laughs> who knows i must have not watched a lot of telly at this point i don't think i don't think i was watching a lot of telly. 18th february woof no. I did watch a couple of these episodes. Was this a kid, this this a kid show about a dog? It was a kid show about a dog, and he ter- yeah. he could turn into <laughs> what, a dog. Gave that away. And most <laughs> of know. the half of the program was of 
they came up with the obviously the innovative thing of that um a low camera angle signified a dog's pov wasn't it like that it was yeah um, it was just to go back to the uh, jolene cover by the way jolene was covered by the sisters of mercy no, everyone covers jolene loads of people one dove did a cracking version of jolene there's so Didn't many you do a version gary you did a version released <laughs> on audio tape so there's the b-side to you i can now borrow a feeling on it <laughs> Probably. It was very successful in Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> Got to number 73. That's what it says in the back of the tape. Successful number 73 in Malaysia. In Malaysia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, except the success, successful bit is mission switch. It says suck in Malaysia. Um, yeah. 20th February, behaving badly. Not men behaving badly. No, just behaving, just badly. behaving badly. Judy, Judy Dench drama. Again, Judy Dench is up there with Wendy Craig in TV land for me. If she's on it, I'm turning it off. It's not going to be watched yeah. by us, is it? No. 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 There's no, no, no daft no in it. So No, there um, isn't. No. 21st of February, Hitman, the Nico in game never show. heard of it. No. Not never to be confused with the Hitman and Hair. No. Just Hitman. No. 24th of February, Funhouse. Oh, I hated this. It, I, I, hated I think I was it. too old for this. I was too old for it. It was too garish. It was too colourful. It's too loud. A bunch of annoying kids bouncing around. Was this the sort of advent of the gunk tank and everything? Well, the gunk tank was kind of like Tiswals, and they took that same same kind of thing and applied it to the funhouse, and gunking kids was never funny. Hosted by Pat Sharp, of course. Pat Sharp. Pat Sharp. Very successful DJ and broadcaster. Absolutely. His mullet mullet has gone on to many great things. (laughs) 24th of February, A Quiet Conspiracy. So never quiet, watched never, it. So quiet, mm. never, never saw it. And um, it had the Home Pride Man as its lead. Joss Ackland. Joss Ackland. <laughs> 26th of February, <laughs> Forever Green, John Alderton and Pauline Collins. No, well, Pauline, no. I, do I do remember, remember this. this. Yeah. I do remember this when I looked it up. And yeah. Pauline Collins is up there with Wendy Craig and Judy Dench. <laughs> if your... she appears on my telly, <laughs> it's going off. It's your triumvirate of switch off. <laughs> They'd been in another show together, hadn't they? And people really liked them as a team. They did, so they, yeah. Hence they the reason did. they came to this one. They did. They I mean, did. you know, it's, it was a successful programme, I think, from what I remember. But it wasn't for me. 26th yeah. of February. This one actually Forever Night. This was Nick Knight. No, but Forever Night was the actual programme that was delivered. But Nick Knight was the pilot. Uh, film, pilot. The pilot. Mm. 1989 American television film about Nick Knight, a centuries-old vampire working as a police detective in modern-day Los Angeles. But uh, this sounds quite interesting. Centuries it did old sound vampire. quite interesting. Never watched it. No, probably never watched it. Um, on into films. There's a lot of films this month. A lot of big films. Uh, big one, maybe right at the very beginning. Third of February, uh, Die Hard came out in the UK. Yeah, don't get much bigger than that, really, do you? No, time, I remember honest. seeing this on. I think my brother got it on a dodgy pirate video, and I remember watching it one Saturday night, going, "Oh, Die Hard! I've heard of that. What's this all about?" And I was just by the end of the two hours later, I was just like, "Oh my god, that's probably the best thing I've ever watched in my life." It's, it's very consummate. It is incredible. It is very consummate. It's very well presented. It's uh, well, very well made. It's it's a it's an archetypal template for what an action film basically stood for at the end of the eighties into the nineties. Yeah, yep. and everybody ripped it off. You know, it's now become de rigueur to say you know snakes on a plane is die hard with snakes. I guess you yeah. just it became it became a genre, didn't it? Where you had one it person one person stuck in a location up against. In, you know, invading hordes of exactly like you could be a, a, a hero on an ice cream van. It's been invaded by you know kids. <laughs> Die hard on an ice cream in an ice cream van. Ninety nine. <laughs> ice hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was all leading to Die Hard, wasn't it? For Bruce Willis, I mean, he's essentially play, playing a a version of his character from uh, Moonlighting. Moonlighting, and he was very good at it. Very good at it. I mean, it's, 
you know, it's a shame nowadays he's got dementia and he's... Yeah, uh, that's a tragedy. Uh, but he was brilliant. And it was also as well, if, thinking about it, there were two books. This was a sequel book. The original book had been turned into a film with Frank Sinatra. And originally they wanted Frank Sinatra in the role. Um, what, this role? Yeah, yeah. If you, ever, if you want a good sort of documentary, this the documentary series, the um, films that films that made us on Netflix, but you can get it from wherever you want. Uh, and there's a good, a good episode about, about Die Hard on there. And the other thing with Bruce Willis is that he was a bit more everyman than what we've been used to, your Stallones, your Schwarzeneggers, he was, so these yeah. massive, you know, massive hulks mm. of meat. And, you know, he was just a cop, regular job in the wrong 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 place, wrong time. That that kind of that kind of thing. So and it was a uh, you know, found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time but did the right thing, you know, and it, it changed how um I suppose Lethal Weapon had been a sort of vehicle for that as well, with Mel Gibson not being quite the huge action man. But even he was, you know, what was he he was a Vietnam vet, special forces vet one in Lethal Weapon. So they all had these special abilities, whereas he was just a normal cop and happened to be a bit more approachable as a character, I think. The story's quite interesting because it doesn't all go the hero's way. In fact, it actually doesn't go his way at all, really, for quite a long time. He is always sort of finding things that are broken and not really being able to fix them and just sort of escaping out of situations throughout the whole film. Hmm. So, you know, he doesn't save the person from being shot. He doesn't manage to really do anything. He manages to get the terror, the other terrorist, um, and the, sorry, the, uh, what do you call it, the kidnap people, all the people who are kidnapped off the roof and stuff. But for a great percentage of this film, he's actually not believed. He's told to not be involved. He struggles to sort of actually do anything and get anywhere. It's quite interesting for that. Mm. Um, if you watch it in that context, you know, he is not only the wrong place, person at the wrong time, but he, he doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to be doing those things. And he's actually struggling with all of that all the way through and hopelessly outmatched and outgunned at every possible turn and just happens to really sort of find his way through it by the, mm. the, look, the judgment. He ends, ends up shoeless, doesn't he, as well? Shoeless. Yeah. And, and it's not just one person who good. gets, he can't stop being shot. It's two, isn't it? Because it's this Takagi. The, the boss, yes. and then there's uh, and then Ellis, there's... the guy who pretends to be his friend. Yes. And, yeah, he, does, uh, he doesn't actually manage, and he even gets fooled by um, Hans Gruber, doesn't he? he get, so he's not actually not that good at what he does in there. It's quite good for that. He's not great at being the hero. I think that's what's important with that. 10th of Feb, um, if you wanted something a bit more dubious, you could have gone and seen Arthur 2 on the rocks. Rubbish, rubbish film. <laughs> I think you've discussed Dudley Moore before, and I actually really like Dudley Moore. He was a fascinating guy. He had an incredible career. He was an incredibly talented pianist, and mm. he was a generally funny guy. He was he was like three foot two, and he made such a success <laughs> of himself. He's taller than that. Yeah, he's, he's taller than that. <laughs> and, you know, fair play to him. You can't defend Arthur too on the rocks. He's, you know, they're, they're, they're celebrating the fact he's a drunk. Um, yeah. and so on and so on. It's, it's, it wouldn't be made nowadays. It's fairly dubious. So, But Arthur, I actually have quite a bit of time for Arthur, the first one. But it's not really about anything. I think they're very high concept, very about the songs that came with Arthur 2 and the songs that came with Arthur. They were about that. The best, the better Dudley, if you're going to watch any Dudley Moore movies, watch 10 or something like that because it's a lot I, better I, than I did watch 10 a few weeks ago and it, it is of its time. I think you discussed 10 before on this and it yeah, is very it is, but it's, it's better than that. So, But it's certainly better than that. It is better, it than, is better uh, than this. Instead of going to see Arthur 2 on the rocks, which is, you know, your wrong choice, you made a wrong choice, you should have gone and seen the next film, which was The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad. Um, yes. And I watched that again this week in preparation for this podcast, and it's still as funny. It has all the same moments, every moment, I just laugh at. I cannot, this is, what's his seventh funniest film of all time, according to Empire List? I'll probably, yeah, maybe, maybe higher for me. 
It's hilarious. This film's amazing. It's 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 non-stop gags. But that's, that's good. The, that's the genius of the Zucker films, wasn't it? Well, three was of them. Those, the, the, those films that they did together, was it, Maybe was it Top Secret, well. the first airplane, Top Secret, and then this one? Yeah. Is that they, the, when they hit it, they really, really hit it. And they were so consistent with the gags. I mean, the, isn't it something like 80% of the jokes from this film were actually in the TV series? They basically just took the TV series and yeah, made yeah. a film of it. Not that's, not that. to, that's not to denigrate the, the, the film itself. It, they were merely taking the TV series from a few years before uh, and putting it out on the screen. And it is very funny, it's, you know. It's, it's, I'll let, I can't ever forget the moment. The moment where he, he looks up he looks up a ladder at Priscilla Presley and goes, nice beaver. Yeah, nice beaver. Nice beaver. Everyone knows that. Or when Ted shoots at, uh, what's his name, in the in the throat. It's like, Ted, why? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, many good moments. Uh, that so reminds many. me, actually, that watching them back, and I haven't watched them for a couple of years, but I remember doing so and thinking, George Kennedy is the undersung hero oh, of these films. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, he's hilarious. so funny. He's timing. The fact he's self-deprecative, he's the butt of the jokes, yep. he's... Just in, he's he's absolutely one of the key comedy moments of life in in films and life. Belong to George Kennedy, but also there's a lot of sequels to Naked Gun. I would write them off because they are all funny in their own way. They're not maybe they are, as funny yeah. as that, They're but they, okay. are, they are they are very they are funny in, in their own way. I mean, I would put Naked Gun maybe like the Empire magazine did say seventh greatest comedy of all time. I, th- I don't know if that's any higher than that. I think I'm sure there's funny. I'm trying to think of other ones, but... you know. Classic, classic, classic. But it's up there in the top 50, I would suggest. And don't forget, right, that, I mean, this film's come out later in the day after the Police Squad series, but don't forget the influence that these types of gag heavy films had on so many other films around at that time is unreal. There's so many, not just tons of them. Not just at the time, since then. If everything, you've got all your scary movies um, and all those kind of things that just rip this off. Dracula, Mel Brooks got in on the action of Dracula Dead and Loving It. I'm going to get you, sucker. I'm going to get you, sucker. Um, and don't forget Hot Shots. Hot Shots. Hot Shots, yeah. Hot Shots Part Duh. And also the other good one. <laughs> but that one, was a Zucker film though, wasn't it? Yeah, the other yeah, one that yeah. I actually have time for is uh, Loaded Weapon. That's quite good. Yeah. No, that's quite no, funny. It's Emilio Estevez, uh, Samuel Jackson one. <laughs> it's, it's quite funny. That is that. pretty funny. It is diminishing returns though. From, from, yeah, from they are, but you know, what, you know what you're going into. I mean, A couple of weeks later, 24th of Feb, you could have gone seeing The Big Blue. You could have, but you'd have been bored out of your tiny mind. <laughs> yeah, you really would have. I, I haven't watched this for a good 30-odd years since I watched it in the early 90s. No. it's. I think I lured the ambition of Luc Besson with this, and I, I actually thought this was... Um, it's pretty. Um, it's pretty to watch. It, it is. It is gloriously pretty, and it's 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 got ambition, but it doesn't quite hit the mark. No. Nah. You know, Luc Besson did much better with Nikita. The thing that I remember about The Big Blue, there was this and there was Betty Blue, it was just on every pretentious student's wall, the poster. I just saw it on so many bloody, so many walls at, uni- at university. Just so go in someone's room, and if they had a Betty Blue or a big blue poster, generally tended to walk out. So, like when you went, kind of got talking to some girl at the university, and she took you back to her room, and you, you saw those posters, you went, "No, <laughs> I did. I've had enough of this. I made exactly Sorry, like my dear. I'm out of here. <laughs> I made exactly like a News of the World reporter. I made my excuses. I made your excuses <laughs> and left. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry. You're very pretty, and I appreciate that you're naked, but you Betty Blue post, I'm afraid I'm out of here. Sorry. And uh, you've got the big blue on your firewall. I'm sorry, love, but you're going to have to pull it down. <laughs> it's so boring, that film. So yeah. utterly boring. <laughs> oh. 
It is a bit boring. And then there's the director's cut in a big blue box, if I remember. And it was about three hours long. And it was even more boring. Even more duller. It was, duller. Yeah. It was 20 yeah. more minutes of boredom. It was just the, the, the boring director added more boring to his boring film. <laughs> Uh, same day, if you didn't go see The Big Blue, you had a lot of choice on 24th February. If you didn't go see The Big Blue, you could have gone and seen The Accidental Tourist. Ah, uh, the video box that would never leave the shelves. <laughs> Nobody ever did, though, did they? No. Nobody no. watched it this ever. Was, never uh, seen no. it. This was thingy, wasn't it? It was Gina Davis and Gina, William Hurt. Gina Davis, Hurt. yeah. William Hurt. Yeah, William Hurt, yeah. This, we used to nick, we nicknamed this The Accidental Rental when we were at Blockbuster. <laughs> Because it only ever went out for somebody who was like, I'll just get that one as well. It was like an accident. Never went when out. You put, when you put this on the list, I thought, I, I don't think I've ever seen that. I'm going to go and have a look at its synopsis. And I read the synopsis and I thought, there's a very good reason why I've never watched this. It's <laughs> yeah. really, really tell you boring. Yeah. Wishy-washy it may be, but it's got a really good and interesting soundtrack by one John Williams. And it's a little bit different to his usual, Spie- his usual Spielberg stuff. So I'd go and just check the soundtrack out, which you can do on YouTube. It's quite good. Same day, if you didn't fancy either The Accidental Tourist or The Big Blue, you could have gone seen Return of the Living Dead Part 2 another film I watched this week and yeah, that's you'd, two hours you'd wish still, you hadn't. So I'm, not, I'm not getting back <laughs> Jesus this is bad all my memories that I had of this were not of this they were the first one I was surprised it had Dino Ashbrook in from who was Mike in Twin Peaks yeah it was yeah literally just before he did Twin Peaks and I remember and I did watch about a year ago the original Return so people don't know these films these are zombie movies uh, and basically the premise... The Living Dead might have been a giveaway for that. They're interesting because they're what's-his-face. It's the guy who co-directed Night of the Living Dead, so the, the guy who co-wrote uh, Night of the Living Dead, John Russo, cooked all that up with George Romero, and between the two, they came up with a, a, a plan that Romero would own the rights to the Dead movies, which would be semi-serious, and Russo would take the rights to the Living Dead series and there'd be a comedy. So they made The Return of the Living Dead in 85, after, obviously a long time after Romero had made Dawn of the Dead in 78. And it was a very different thing to uh, Romero's take on the zombies movies, which ultimately led to Walking Dead and everything else. But The Return of the Living Dead films, it's that kind of... The first one works because... The first one is it's, okay. It's got that whole kind of... It's not a very great, very good film, but it's got, you know, it's got, it's got linear creepiness to in. it. It's got a creepiness to it. And it's, you know, but the second one, The Return 11 to 2, is just, it's shot in that format that a lot of TV was shot in. It's not particularly gripping. It's not particularly interesting. Not funny. It's, it's not, not funny. Gory. It's not, it, you know, there's, there's no real reason for it to exist. It's a, pa- at it's all, a pastiche. Really. It's the, what they've tried to do is they've tried to do Evil Dead 2. I think. Well, if they were trying to do Evil Dead, yeah. if they're trying to do Evil, Evil, Evil Dead, Dead 2, 2, then they completely failed. Yeah, because I think what they've done is they've seen part. Evil Dead, which is the you know the dark original, then Evil Dead 2, which kind of remakes the first one, but you know lightens the tone a bit and sort of broke it up a bit. And I think, because this is almost a remake of the first one, um, it's got the same two actors, isn't it, it? So, if I believe, I think those two are in the first one, I seem to recall. Are they? I th- I'm pretty sure. I'm pre- that's the two the ones who were the grave diggers, the ones who were doing I thought they were in the first one. I seem to remember them. The, yeah, the, they are, yeah. The, yeah. The, the most irritating characters oh, the, in the Stop program. screaming. There's so much screaming oh. in this. And it's male screaming, which is even worse. Oh, God, the old guy, the old guy who oh. gets rigor mortis. Oh, he's so irritating. That's like, stupid. He, oh my yeah God, this was too you know. dreadful dreadful and now, like i said i was like I, I, I came to the conclusion i'd never actually seen it i'd never watched this till the other night and i was like uh what does, en- does anyone house, gary what living living dead 2 yeah we watched it I, at your house yeah i i honestly can't i remember watching living dead 1 because we stole clips from it didn't we from some for some of our films but yeah. living dead 2 i don't i don't remember no, watching it. yeah we watched it in your lounge I remember watching it. Oh, God, it, it, felt like, it felt like a cheap thriller knockoff. 
<laughs> moment yeah. of it. It's just ugh. And I think I think I think this this begged the question that that was in my mind watching this was have there been too many funny horror comedies? And I can only think of three off the top of my head. American Werewolf, Bad Taste, and Brain Dead. Please tell me some more that Shaun of the Dead? No, I didn't find that funny. Mm, I did. No, didn't find it funny whatsoever. I mean I mean you could put Evil Dead 2 in there to some degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Evil Dead Two is a good shout. It is, it is funny. It has its moments. It, mm. it, it is uh, of a, of a whatever. But just I can't, I can't get into this. Ameri- I don't think the two, the two genres Zombieland. work very well together. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously good films, <laughs> but great films like the the fact that the two genres should really be. Whenever someone says to me, "Oh, it's a horror comedy," I just think, "What a load of old crap!" I don't want to watch that. I want. I want the. Hey, wait, nay. Here we go, <laughs> Mr. Vampire. Now you're talking. Brilliant. Those hopping, crazy Chinese vampires. I love it. There you go. That's there true. Go. That's true. Fair enough. Uh, you know, but those American films. No. Yeah, yeah. I think there, there isn't an easy blend, is it? And they tend to because it's a difficult mixture because you're adding comedy in for an audience that doesn't naturally sit. They want to go and get scared. No, exactly. Exactly. So t- the teen audience aren't going to find the jokes funny. And they're not gory enough to scare them or violent enough. So they just they just miss. They just miss wildly. Yeah, Even yeah. It doesn't the work. The thing as well is that 1989 is probably the nadir of the sort of horror cycle, you know, the horror cycle. It wouldn't pick up Boom. again until the sort of mid-90s with things like Scream and stuff when they would sort of pick the baton up again oh, and go God, a little bit film. more. So, I hate it. But even well, if you hate it. it or not, whatever, it's that that would rejuvenate into a certain type of horror film. The, what, what Was there much big horror that was coming out I think, around... I think what you've got to remember is that you're dealing here with... You're talking about cinema, yeah. Straight to video, that's where a lot of these cheaper horrors were going. Oh, God, oh yeah. Oh, God, yeah. They were. So, yeah, well, let's so, just throw them all in as... as but, but, but what I mean is that I agree with you in that the, the, sort of the age of the cinema, the good cinema horror didn't pick up again. It sort of lost its way a bit. But straight to video, then straight to DVD, there was a whole ton of those sort of films coming out at this mm. point. But I think it's curious that those three films I mentioned, American Werewolf, Brain Dead, and uh, Bad Taste, we're not American. And I, I I put American Werewolf in the sense that I think that's a British film. It's got a very British sensibility of humour to it. That whole sequence of using the porn actors at the end is classic British pastiche yeah. of 70s but British. Eight, but when was it? 81? 81. 81, 82. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. So 81, you had, you, you had this sort of, that period where they, they have these sort of come through. By the end of the 80s, you've got the Reagan. You know, it's what happened with, if you look at sort of the, uh, Friday the 13th franchise or Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. The first one, yeah, 19, 1984, Nightmare on Elm Street, dark, nasty, and horrible. By nine, five, you've got the Fat Boys doing the soundtrack. You know, Oh, what a time yeah. to be alive that and, was. And they, and, and, Times you know, are changing. Freddy Krueger becomes a wise-cracking serial killer type. Where, you know, that was never the case. So it, it's any kind of these, these cycles going like you have the normal, then you have the pastiche, and then you have the reinvention. And, and then the you go other. back to the cycle. For example, when, when Blair Witch came out in 99, then you had the cycle of, oh, my God, these films are horrific. The found footage films did it. And then three or four years later, five years later, you had the the comedy versions. Mm. Yeah, and you know, the, to me, the, the it's the lowest common denominator to take. And it took something like something paranormal horrific activity to, to to bring it back, bring it back yeah, to bring bit. it back to its roots. Yeah. And it does go in cycles like that. And it does. You, yeah, you it got, does. You got to thank people like Ari Aster and people like for trying to bring horror back to the horror movies in the cinema a little bit there. Mm. People didn't really want horror at the end of the 80s, I don't think. No, because it was a Reaganism kind of boom time. So why did they want horror? They wanted 
good teen, biz, teen businessmen and women. The, yeah, and they wanted Ferris Bueller's mm-hmm. yeah. and so on and so on. They wanted Fatal Beauty, which was also out on that day. Which has anyone actually heard of? No, no. <laughs> I, well, I'd seen it. I remember. I remember when I looked at the the internet movie database. I think I remember. I remember it. I think I remember um, a trailer. But it's for not it. one of Whoopi Goldberg's greatest films, is it? So to round off the month, though, same day. If you none of them floated your boat, you could have gone and watched Manhunter. Finally, you could have gone and watched Manhunter at the UK cinema three years later, but you could have gone and watched it. Unlimited release in the UK as well. Was it limited? Jesus. I think I think it's a curious thing that Manhunter was released three years ago. So to give a bit of background to your viewers slash listeners, is Manhunter is probably my favourite film of all time. I have three favourite films, Manhunter, Risky Business, and Excalibur. And I think when I watched Manhunter, if you remember, Adrian, you watched it before me, didn't you? You said, you're going to come around and watch my telly and we're going to watch Manhunter. And I don't know what I was doing. I was obviously <laughs> pissing around doing something. Do I sound and I didn't like that? Come. And uh, you said, oh, yeah, I watched it. It was quite good. I said, oh, I, I never watched it. And then, and I think this is the curious thing, uh, is it was shown on BBC Two as part of the movie drone season mm. with uh, Alex Cotts, uh, the film director, giving the introduction. Now, for people who don't know, Movie Drone was a, 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 a season that ran from 1988 to about 2000. But the first one of Movie Drone, 88 to about 93, 94, was delivered by Alex Cox. Uh, and in the front of each film, they gave an introduction uh, talking about it. And I remember sitting there about 91, 92, and I watched it and I just sat there mesmerized for two hours. It was like my film had arrived in front of me. I was completely blown away by it. I love cult films. I love genre films, and I'd already seen. Had we seen? I think we'd obviously seen Thief at some uh, before then by the film director Michael Mann. Some point, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Which was uh, uh, I don't want to say it's not. It's a, not a gangster film. It's a film about a thief who's gets beyond his uh, takes head, on one last job. Takes on one last job with job with James Caan, and I, I still in my top ten. But then he this film here was a few years later, and it's a very different film to Thief. It's very brightly lit it's very color coded um it's got uh, a very um big synth soundtrack it's got very kind of um specific performances from dennis farina uh, william peterson who basically reprised the role in csi i mean csi investigates whatever the program was yeah, i never Grissom, watched it, is that any, yeah. was basically a riff on manhunter it completely took the same character uh, and applied it to a tv series uh, and this is obviously famous, Manhunter being the progenitor for the introduction of uh, Hannibal Lecter, which is this time mm-hmm. performed by Brian Cox. Because uh, so obviously, let's not, let's not forget, this is based on the Thomas Harris book, Red Dragon. Yeah, so yeah. Thomas Harris wrote the novel a few years before. And what's curious about this film is that the novel itself is quite a little different and is more... There was another version in 2002... Uh, called Red Dragon that was released. Awful version. And it kept a lot of the Thomas Harris bits in it. And one of the things at the end of the the Thomas Harris novel is what I call the kind of the Friday the 13th thing where uh, the killer, Dollarhide, comes back and it's a bit of a jump scare. So what Michael Mann did, the director of Manhunter, was he stripped back all of the excesses of uh, Thomas Harris's novel and ended up with a kind of a procedural film uh it's, it can be seen as a little bit dry not an awful lot really happens there's a lot of kind of floozy scenes of people stroking tigers and so on and so on um and made this this film and it is gloriously uh colorful and uh what's the word very cultish and it's still one of my favorite films if and still in my top three uh, of all time you know 
there's a fantastic thing about this film, I think. Uh, if you really like Science of the Lambs or Red Dragon or any of the Hannibal TV series, I'm not entirely convinced you're going to like Manhunter. It's very of its time. It's very um, specific to its its period. Uh, but I think it's curious. For me, I, I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic, and I still do. I still watch the scene, I don't know, a couple of times a month where Will Graham figures out in the in the room who the killer is by watching the TV clips. I still watch that. It's just beautifully done. And do you know what? It's beautifully acted by Dennis Farina, who actually was a cop mm. originally. Uh, and even he, even he is fantastic in it. So, yeah. Uh, you like it then? I do like it. Yeah, I could <laughs> wax lyrical for it for hours and hours and hours and hours. You have. You have before. We've sat and listened to you. Yeah, it's been three weeks. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is the longest episode we've ever done. <laughs> I've just had a cowboy cut out of me on my uh, video stream here for the last 10 minutes. Are you just about to set fire to yourself like an airplane? Yeah. <laughs> we met in 1944. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I, well, again, another one I watched, rewatched for the podcast. I've not seen it. I'd, well, I actually seen it quite recently, but I thought I'd give it another watch. I think I, I, I'm not going to, you like what you like, Gary. It's fine. My, I think the problem with this film is that this film is at its strongest when it's doing the procedural stuff. It is completely. Um, and so it, the, the it, first it, half is great. The first half, you know, for because it, it it's one of those rare films that gets going straight away. That there's that great shot of the pair of them opposite ends of that log on the beach to start the thing. It's, beautifully, it's, it's beautifully really done. really good, and it just starts. You know, you want to drag me in. You want to show me the pictures, all that kind of stuff. And he goes and he gets going. And there's the great sequence where he goes to the house and he's trying to figure out what's going on. You know, the leaves, blood spatter on there, and all that kind of stuff. And it's all great. All the stuff with the reporter going to see Hannibal Lecter. It's all brilliant. As soon as we get to, even the bit with Dollarhide with the, the, the reporter, fine, that's all great because it's you know w- w- this psychopath is this psychopath is kind of weird with you know and all that kind of stuff. But then as soon as we get to the relationship bit with Dollarhide, it it falls apart for me, and it only gets good again, like you said, when he's doing the working it out bits, when he's trying to work, you know, when he comes to the realization of who it is and working it out the whole. I just have no time for the whole trying to give Dollar Hyder, and I understand it because it's a blind woman and it's all about, you know, she can, you know, he wants people to see him for who he is and she's blind. So does she see him for who he is? She just takes him for what he is through her hands and things. I get all that. I just think the film takes a huge misstep at that point. I, I, I think, I think it's really interesting is that the book itself is far more Gothic, you know, in the book, Dollarhide lives in a ramshackle. He doesn't live in that dead tech post-postmodern with his big picture no, of Mars. Yeah, <laughs> he, 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 like Michael Mann has said, there's no there's no angles in in his in his particular. He lives, but in the book, he lives in a gothic type mansion because he, he lives in his mum's house, yeah, his grandmother's house, his yeah. grandmother's house. Yeah, and Michael Mann removed all of that. He stripped back all the gothic excesses of it, which he presumably found to be kind of. Victorian and a bit more well, not what he was striving for. There's a part in the book where he eats the the picture of the red dragon, and it's one of the worst yeah. part, worst worst bits of the book. He goes to the Boston or New York Museum, wherever and it is, consumes and he the actually picture. gets in and consumes the William Blake picture, and it's bloody rubbish. It's just stupid. Nobody could do that. No one's going to get in and get away with eating a William Blake painting. No one's going to do that. So Michael Mann obviously knew that, and he removed those excesses. Um, and made this procedural I film. Wish and I think, my thing is, I wish he'd have stripped it back further and just fo- yeah, focused I on Peter. I, I, I on think Peterson. that's a valid point. I think that is a valid point. You know, and I think one of the questions that come off this when I looked at what was in this particular thing we're talking about, Return of the Living, Living Dead Two, is about cult movies and how cult movies exist in the sphere, sphere that they do. 
you know, what Manhunter is clearly a cult movie. The movie Drome season, which um, you can find the list of the films on the internet quite quickly, and they were fantastic. You know, Jack Nicholson films, horror films, film noir, French films. It's a film course by itself. You know, I think me, you, Greg, we all watched a hell of a lot of those films and they were massively influential for Movie Drone. And I, I, I'd love to go back and actually have the time to watch every single film that was on Movie Drone across 88 to, you know, we're probably talking about 60, 70 films. Uh, and Manhunter obviously being one of them. Um, and we're going back to, to this release now, in 89, I don't think Manhunter really works. I probably wouldn't have released it. it. It's a bit of its time. I don't know what they were trying to do. My Command didn't make another film, what was it, till Last of the Mohicans. Was that after his next Manhunter. one after this? So Last of the Mohicans, I remember going with Graham to watch it and we were just blown away. Blown away, except for the wobbling rock right at the end. <laughs> Bloody wobbling rock. Who didn't see that? I've, I've never noticed the wobbling, the wobbling rock. rock. I've never noticed it's, it. Watch the, go, go, uh, go to YouTube and watch the final sequence right. on the well, side of the cliff and you will see uh, Daniel Day-Lewis push the wobbling yeah. rock. But um, just to say, I mean, because obviously this is the... Um, Introduction of Hannibal Lecter on on celluloid. So this is his first first one. I, I'm, I'm from a personal point of view. I I much prefer Silence of the Lambs because Silence of the Lambs sticks to that procedural tone more, and that's I think that's why I prefer it because it is it, it has a more consistent tone than this. But that's but Alex Cox said that in the introduction on Movie Drone. He said uh, Jonathan Demme's film is tightly plotted. Michael Mann's isn't. I don't think it's the title. I don't know. It's just I, I just have no time for tigers. I just just, just I just don't. I mean, I, 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 even if they come to tea, no, especially not. And even if one has a blue eye and one has a red eye, I just don't have time for them. Um, I don't know. It's just, just just that bit. Just I remember watching it when I very first watched it, and obviously told you about it. I think that was the bit I was like, a. <laughs> I think there's a, there is a clip on on, and I don't know if you want to put it in your notes in that shows you Michael Mann discussing why he put that scene in uh, and so on and so on. And I, I kind of semi-agree with you. And I'm, I think it's curious that when people love films is that you, and which is why I love films is that cult films tend to be imperfect and you love films because they are imperfect and you, you, you like them for that very reason. Maybe. And I can understand that it's not right. It's not a, it slows down at a certain point. And for me, Manhunter ends the very second that they call for the Learjet to take them to find the killer because it's figured out then the film is over. They figured out who it is. It doesn't need the next 20 minutes mm. because you know exactly what's going on. It should have ended then because that scene is so perfect and beautifully written and beautifully delivered by the two actors and it doesn't need to go on. So cult films, I think the reason why we love cult films is they are imperfect. Not everyone's going to agree. You know, everybody can agree that, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark is an incredible film. Everyone's going to oh, Die Hard at the top of this list. I mean, incredibly well made, beautifully put together. You can barely find a fault with it, but it's not sitting on my top list. I don't know how many people will say Die Hard is on the top 10 of their movies list because it's too perfect. It's too good. And I think sometimes with cult movies is you want a film to have faults. And for me, when films have faults, I actually fall in love with them because they have faults which might sound a bit kind of film nerdish, but hey-ho, that's kind of the guy I am. It is. Sorry. And, um, yeah, I've just got a flashback as to us stood outside your house, outside in the in this alleyway <laughs> outside your house, two o'clock in the morning, saying, man, it's not that being good. Being told off. <laughs> being told yeah. off by the neighbour going shut up stop yeah. talking go to bed you haven't changed that man on the record in 20 30 years goodness <laughs> me it's like we've got to just replay back the conversation we've had over time yeah. <laughs> but still there you go anyway that's it um that's it so we had some, some tv sky started broadcasting dishes appeared 
Uh, Homing away came over here. Dem Watts was possibly killed, or maybe not. Who knows? Uh, Tyson fought Bruno. There's lots of new shows that we'd never heard of, apart from Wolf. And then you could have watched Die Hard and a load of other films. My, I, I think pick Die Hard, Naked Gun, and Man on Earth. I think the best three. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's you know from from this month. Good good month yeah. for films. I have to say, it's a good month. It is. It is good. Yeah. I mean, you know, you would have wouldn't mind spending your one pound fifty going to see most of those. Is, to be honest, that is but. true. Um, Gary, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, for, okay, for pleasure. Section. I really enjoyed it as I always do. I always love coming on, chatting, and. And it's always good to have you on. And our listeners seem to like you for some reason. I don't know why. I know. I don't get it. (laughs) Just how God made me, (laughs) sir. That's true. (laughs) That's the problem. Uh, If you, where are you on? On anyone you want to say anything? Where people can find you? I know you're trying to always flog stuff on Discogs. Uh, You can find me on Twitter uh, under the name Fifty Two Vinyl Five Two Vinyl. Uh, Mostly talking about music, but also culture, pop art, whatever the hell comes to mind. All right. Well, thank you very much. So on that note, we'll say goodbye to Gary. Bye, Gary. Bye, Gary. Thank you. Um, Bye-bye. See ya. And we'll be back in a bit. (laughs) We've still got three more games to get through, so please do stick around. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed all that film talk. It was uh, pretty enjoyable. I did enjoy myself. That's good. I like that. Um, let's get back to some games. We've still got three more to cover before this, end of the month. Um, no crap verts, unfortunately. I couldn't find any crap verts for, um, for February 1989, but still. Uh, chats and uh, next month. See you coming up. Anyway, let's get into our first game uh, of these three. And our first game, Graham, is Neuromancer. Disc only, £14.95. Um mm. Yeah, Noromance, interesting one. In amongst all the arcade conversions and rubbish film licenses this month, we get another type of license game. This is Neuromancer from Interplay, based on the seminal 1984 cyberpunk novel by William Gibson. I'll say right here at the start, I've not read the novel, um, but I'm well aware of the influence this had on science fiction and video games as they evolved. Uh, Gibson's novel uh, was the first in the his Sprawl trilogy, it's set in the future in Chiba City in Japan and focuses on Henry Case, who is a hacker who has fallen on hard times and is hired for one last job, but comes up against a powerful artificial intelligence. Its use of augments to change, alter and improve humans with various chips would become a staple in science fiction going forward, especially in video games with games like Deus Ex, um, the recent Cyberpunk 2077, Uh, along with a host of others borrowing heavily from this. And its virtual reality data space is known colloquially in the books as The Matrix. So, you know, there's that too. Um, Yeah. So it's pretty influential, this book. It is on my list of books to read once I've got through all of Lovecraft stuff, which I'm reading at the moment, which I've nearly done. So um, I feel like there's a dark presence watching over me half the time these days. Anyway, the game. As noted, this is from Interplay. A uh, load of people working on this, a lot of people. This was programmed by Troy A. Miles. It was designed by Bruce J. Balfour, Michael A. Stock- Stackpole, Brian Fargo, and Troy A. Miles. It was produced by Brian Fargo with artwork by Charles H. H. Weidman III, and the musician was Dave Warhol. Now, you may have heard of Brian Fargo, um, he created Interplay, worked on the Bar's Tale series and the Wasteland series of games, currently runs in exile. Um, he's one of those that's been very influential in certain gaming genres. Um, you know, he's, he's one of those names he's, he's just big in role-playing games um, and, th- and these, these kind of games that kind of came along like this. Anyway, Noromancer, it's a big game. Five disc sides this takes up. Five. Um, when it first loads up, you input your name, 
when the game starts. Um, and you're straight into it. There's no preamble. It's just you're straight in. You begin the game in a bar called the Chatsubo, um, and you wake up with your head in a bowl of synth spaghetti, and you owe the proprietor, Rats, 46 credits for the meal. You only have 10 on you, though. So what are you going to do? So essentially, this is a point-and-click adventure game. Before you start playing, there's masses of stuff to read to get you into the setting. There's loads of stuff that came with this. There's a big old backstory. There's manuals galore, um, hints. There's a sort of preamble. On, on Lemon64, there's some there's this huge um documents and stuff that came with this all to try and you know give you some clues of what the world itself and things there's just tons of stuff um because obviously they're put they're pulling all this information and the sort of backstory from the the book itself there's a lot to draw on here um for this world that you sort of are going to exist in with this game um suffice to say you play henry case um, and the first thing you need to do is your first challenge is to get your deck back. Um, and this, your deck is the thing that allows you to access cyberspace again, which is uh, part of the point of the game. There's no, they don't, when the game starts, you, you kind of at a loss as to what to do. There don't really seem to be much point. No, no sort of initial, um, re you read the manual and there's kind of no go do this. Um, like we saw with Maniac Mansion or things like that before, it's like, oh, you these kids, teens have been kidnapped. Go do this. I, I found in this sort of thing, I read through most stuff, but I kind of didn't really get it. It was like, you're in this world. Okay, go. Okay. So that's what I found anyway. But maybe people are different if they've read through it all. There's a lot to read through. Um, the screen itself, so when you're playing this, is reminiscent of a lot of these kind of games. It's got a graphical window at the top um, showing case and the location is is in. Um, in the bottom left, the series of eight icons that let you interact with the world or access the game's options. The icons um, are mode, which switches the info displayed from how much credit you have to the time, the date, and then your constitution level. There's inventory, which lists what you have to hand. There's a PAX button, that's P-A-X, all in capitals, um, which allows you to interact with PAX machines if one is on the screen, so in the location you're at. You can talk to people on the screen, there's a little dialogue icon. There's a button to bring up your skills, so once you start getting augments, you can start to get more skills and more things that allow you to do more stuff. There's one to gain control of the character and walk around, so there's like a little walk icon that allows you to control him, wander about the location, wander off the screen, stuff to the next one. There's one to access the ROM construct to if you have them and there's finally there's your options menu save load and quit that sort of thing the PAX machines there's one in the opening uh, scene when you first start the screen and these are terminals that sit on the walls in certain locations and they allow you to access messages to both uh, messages to both send and receive you can access your bank account and download funds do this before leaving the bar and pay your bill that's a, that's my first initial tip because that's kind of what you want to do um, along with reading news about the world and what's going on it's kind of like like we said in Times of Law uh, last week, when you speak to someone, you might ask about rumors and stuff that's going on. This is kind of the similar sort of thing, but most, you know, a sort of science fiction version of it. So you're reading the news, this sort of thing happened. In fact, one of the stories made me think of the uh, day to day, because I think one of the stories uh, was Man Eats Own Head, because um, he thought it was a donut. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's what day to day headline um but i can't remember it probably is um and you find out what's all going on so yeah this the packs you get loads of messages um and it gives you background and clues as to what to do like where your deck is because you get a a message from shin going look i'm not keeping your deck here anymore come and pick it up will you so you know to go to shin's um i think it's a pawn shop p-a-w-n to get your deck back and that's kind of your first port of call where you want to go 
Um, and so this is how you sort of start to learn things about the world um, and you start to sort of figure out, okay, I'll go get that back and then we'll sort of move on from there and see what happens. Control is easy enough. Um, and like Times of Law, the interface is easy to navigate and use. You simply press the fire button. This brings up a little arrow and you can use this to click on the icon, you know, those eight icons you want to use. Um, if you click on the walk, control moves over to the player and you use the joystick to move left, right, up and down into the screen. Um, if you talk to people, there's like a speech bubble. It's like a thought bubble appears at the top of the screen um, with a sort of phrase in. And if you move up and down the joystick, it allows you to cycle through various responses or questions that you might want to say. And pressing the fire button says it out loud. I really like this, um, that kind of way sort of things. It's like, what shall I say? Shall I say that? Shall I say that? No, I'll say this. And you press the fire button, it says that out loud. And then that answers a question you might have been asked or it generates dialogue and, and you can learn about people and talk to them. You can have people just get annoyed with you and wander off um, or not give you information. It's, you know, it's down to you how this sort of progresses, whether you're nice or horrible. Um, next to these icons, the eight icons, is a text display window, which gives you descriptions of locations when you first go to them um, and describes anything of no note in the location as well. So it'll sort of tell you about, like in the first one, it just describes the sort of location you're in and it gives a description of the bar, you know, the person, uh, rats, the the guy behind uh, the bar who's telling you he wants his uh, money um, and things like that. So it, 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 it's uh, progress. So it's, it's it's what it's doing. It's all really smooth and it's easy to park and it pass and it works well enough. There's no real problems with sort of navigating this. It's a really smooth and, you know, uh, intuitive um, UI and the way to control things is really simple and easy. You can also use keyboard shortcut controls for walk and talk and just press them. So you can use the keyboard. You don't have to press um, the fire button. You can do it all like that as well. As you progress through the story, you'll meet many characters and try to figure out what you need to do. It's one of those kind of games. It's uh, not fed to you at the beginning. So there's a lot of game here. As you get deeper and deeper into the story, you learn more and more things about the world, what's happened and what your sort of role in it is and what you've got to do. I thought the dialogue was well written and it was actually pretty funny in places. The help section and the first PAX machine, it's got this never ending list of acronyms and initialisms. It's just, and it had me laughing with the sheer absurdity of it all, like the sob with the whoopee and the this and the that and the linked with that and you have to do this and that and it's it's quite funny um the descriptions are evocative you go to the body shop where you can sell parts of your body for credits um and the guy behind the counter constantly smiles because he's had his lips removed i found that quite unnerving it's quite a, it's quite unpleasant movement from location to location location to location sorry is a tad on the slow side um as it has to access every location from disk. So there's a lot of disk access in this. And this does lead to a bit of a sedentary pace. Your walking's not too fast, but it's not too bad. Um, and you'll soon get used to it. This, this is not a game that's, you know, you're going to complete in, an, in a, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. This is something that you're going to have to puzzle your way through, work out how to do, how to talk to people, where to go, what points to do. It's a point and click adventure. Um, and there's plenty of game here to go at. Um, now, the problem is, for myself, point-and-click adventures are not always my kind of thing. I've said this on the podcast before. Um, but I did actually find this one to be fairly approachable. Maybe it was the subject matter, the sort of cyberpunk stylings of it, the kind of science fiction angle. I did quite a, kind of like this. And there's certainly, like I said, there's plenty of game here. If this is if this is your bag. If this is your thing, this is something to really have a go at. It's not as – maybe it is as well-known. I've never heard of it on the, on the system. It came out on lots of different um, formats. So there's loads of different formats. This is on the – it's on the 16-bit machine as well but it's not one that i was that i hear spoken about very much in when we talk about 
sort of point and click adventures. It's all Monkey Island or Maniac Mansion or Zack McCracken or Loom or Indiana Jones and all. it's all those kind of scum games. Um, or even things like Simon the Sorcerer, Broken Broken Sword, Broken Sword ones. Those kind of uh, those kind of games get mentioned a lot more, and I've not really ever seen this mentioned. It seems a bit of an oversight. I think I, I thought this was pretty good, um, and I thought this you know certainly is a good entry into the genre in 1989 for sure. The graphics on the upper window, they're well realized. I like the swagger in the animation of the main character, the way you walk about. It's got a bit of a sort of swagger to him, and he's got always wandering around with this happy grin. Um, as he wanders around the place um, or, you know, even if he's getting thrown into court all the time for saying the wrong thing to massage parlor workers, which is what I happened to me. Actually, I got thrown into um, court for just leaving the bar the first time. And if you get thrown into court, you just, you, you're in, you're instantly fined. There's this massive face on the wall and you have a sort of hollow lawyer or a sort of computer lawyer and you, you get fined and whatever. Um, having not read the book, I can't speak to how well this translates to source material. I'm sure it takes some stuff, but I think this takes quite a different angle from what the book goes down i'm not sure it follows the, the plot of the book but as another example of the point and click genre on the c64 i think this certainly stands up there with the rest of them as far as i can see it's got a dark sense of humor running through it um it looks good um and i think like we said about times of law i don't i think this should have scored higher than it's 84 percent when things like total eclipse are getting much higher than this it, it seems a bit hard done to i thought especially as the reviewers were really enthusiastic about it um this is i think like Maniac Mansion, this is a sizzler if you're into these sort of games. And even if you're not, like myself, there's something into this one. Maybe it's the disc, maybe it's the disc only, I don't know, 15 quid. I don't know. I'm pretty sure Maniac Mansion was disc only. I don't know if it came out. Maybe it did. I don't know. The thing is with this is I think this is quite a clever game. There's a lot going for it. I, th- I like the locale. I like the situ- the, um, uh, the locations. The, the dialogue is really good. Um, it's quite interesting. It's quite funny. And if you know, if you like this sort of thing and you want something cyberpunky on the C sixty four, I'd go check this out. I thought it was pretty good. What about you? Yeah, I mean it's it's a very lengthy and very complex game, this. It's very hard to summarize in a sort of an initial go at it from yeah. you know uh, from a long time ago. I, I didn't have enough time to really, in all fairness to Neuromancer, give it the justice that it deserves in context, because it's it's massive. But um, and it's a game also that you know gets better the deeper into it that you go. So the further into this game, the more it reveals itself, the more things that you get to do, the more people you talk to, the more information you gain. And this is principally a game about the information mm. um, and about understanding that. You know, there's some really interesting quirks about it. I like the fact that when you go in, you know, you go into the matrix as they call it, or the cybernet. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I like that the fact that you know it's just just it's it's a world in a world in a world, and I really like that about it. The way it's done is very nice. It's the Bard's Tale people, isn't it? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. So um, I, I mean, I personally this appeals that you know, these kind of games do appeal to me, and this is kind of a grown up version of your. You know, you point and click type games, really. You know, it's 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 a little bit point and click, more adventury, more cerebral for a start. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of uh, Beneath the Steel Sky, or should I say Beneath the Steel Sky reminded me of this. This heavily influenced on that. Um, it's a game that I'd never really come across, or at least not for a long time. What you tended to find when you were heavily involved and broiled in scene-based games and discs is that these multi-disc games didn't always fare well because they never all fully worked. Yeah. Oftentimes you'd get them, you might get one disc of it, you know, or you might get a couple, you might get the game, but it might not, you know, one of the discs would be damaged and stuff. And you would never really know until you got fairly far into it. Um, so I never actually played this as much as I'd played many other games 
so this is quite a refreshing revisit. Um, I found it quite surprising, actually, how quickly it got me involved in it. Um, I found the characterization and the graphics graphics are you know for this kind of game perfectly acceptable for what Mm. they are um i didn't find it too compromising in the way that it plays out in the sense that i didn't find there was lots of obtuse pauses and breaks in the game logic and everything else you've got to think about what you're doing in this game a bit there's parts of the game later where um one of the key if you're going to replay this game or if you're going to have a go at this game i would strongly advise whether it's on mame or whatever you play it on you must you know, regularly save your game multiple times because you're going to need to go back to your save states or save games a lot because there's mm-hmm. certain parts of the game where you have to repeatedly do parts of the logic in order to get different full messages out of people and stuff like that. And you're not going to know that until you've been right through sort of various different parts of the game. And this game is massive in scope. I mean, it's, I don't know how far I'm into it at the moment. Um, I think I'm not even out of the sort of cheaper city part, which I don't think is even the first bit. Mm-hmm. So in my current playthrough, and I am, this is a game I'm going back to. I found the controls quick and easy. The interface simple. They kept that, you know, in a similar way to the Times of Law that they kept it to a small range of icons that do stuff. And that window of text and a little bit where you control stuff, that seems to work quite well for these games. Yeah, it does. Um, and there's a lot to this. You need to make sure you, you know, you're taking notes as you go along with a game like this. Um, because if you don't, it's just that kind of game. You know, you, you, it's a game where you're going to go back and there's, I can't imagine how many hours of play there must be in this. If you, you know, you're not going to just sit this and do it in one go. Mm-hmm. So I thought what you've got here is a really well-engineered game based on a very complicated story and book architecture that actually leverages the power of the narrative abilities of a adventure game of this type or an RPG or whatever genre this sort of sits in and leverages them in a really key way to make it a very easy to control, easy game to get into. I don't think the subject is very easy for everybody though. I think this is, you know, where you've got, if you want easy and fun and silly, you'd go for a Lucasfilm. If you want cerebral, a little bit more adult, treats you with a little bit more, you know, mental respect and it isn't just constantly feeding you the story over and over little, little chunks to keep it going. You've got to figure some of this stuff out and get, make, make your own way in this. And there's multiple ways you can do this. This the manual for this is this full of little hints and tips all the way through it. Yeah. But more importantly, um, you know, you this. I think what you'll do from this is probably what desperately want to read the book. Um, I don't yeah. doubt that you know that, that you'll want to read. Is at 1984 the book came out? I think so. Yeah, it's yeah. Very proto internet and all of that stuff. And considering where we sit now in the sort of day and age we're sitting with data and everything. Very prescient to read that book right now, I think, mm. especially with AI and stuff like that, which is a there's a whole key strand of that in this later down the line. Um, so I thought Neuromancer presented a very compelling game experience, which for a humble 8-bit Commodore 64 machine starts to show that maybe it wasn't so great for the old arcade conversions, but for these storytelling RPG type games, this machine can deliver and mm. it can deliver well. And it's starting to sort of prove it in tests. So... Um, I thought Neuromancer presented a giant leap in terms of game architecture for the adult audience, for the audience of this type. We've come across games like, not like this in the way it's laid out, but approaching that audience type before, even Alter Ego at its most basic yeah. is not what yeah, you've got a game for, of, yeah. for kids and things like that. But this is approaching people and treating you with a bit of respect as a game player. There's that other one as yes, well. Yes, it's that, a game. Portal, was it? Portal? Yeah, that's right. The one with the sort of the, the bumps the, the book. book on the... Yeah, yeah. About the future, yeah. So I think it's treating you with a little bit of with deference and a little bit of respect. It's not dressing this up in simple characters and silly graphics, although obviously the graphics are there. It's it's wrapping the story in a very complex logic. And when you're going into some of the, um, the little systems in this, so when you're diving into the packs... So when you're in and out of the pack system to get the news and get things like that, and you're just diving yeah. in and out of systems and stuff like that, um, 
just once you start to do that and you go, you're going in there and you start to get more passwords and get some of the, and you can break into some of the other systems and you start to go into the sort of, you know, the different cyberspace worlds and you get that weird 3D sort of thing. Mm. Um, it, it's a game that keeps giving and giving and giving. And I think there's a lot to take away from it. So I think if you're talking about value for money and you know, game for your book, well, it might be 15 quid, but between, you know, if you were going to spend 30 quid on a couple of games and getting Neuromancer to feed your synapses and getting Macropro Soccer probably to feed your, you know, arcade <laughs> sentimentalities, you're not going to go far wrong with those two games, are you? I think this is a really clever, competent game with the right kind of vibe, controls and playability for its audience. It knows exactly who its audience is and makes a game exactly targeted like a laser for them. I liked everything about it. I can tell it's not a game for everybody because it's not a game for everybody. But what I played and what I am still playing, because I'm still playing it, not right now, but obviously, but I'll go back to it, <laughs> um, is a genuinely interesting game that I've kind of forgotten about completely and I'm finding it very refreshing to go back to. So I would wholeheartedly recommend if you're into that kind of game, take a revisit to it. It's very, very good. I think 84%. I don't know. I'm not sure what the criticism uh, the criticisms were from Zap, whether they're justified any. or not. They really liked so, it. That's what I mean. So I don't I don't quite get the score, but their scoring's gone out the window for me. They know it's, it's live and let die. Only got what fourteen percent less than this. Come on, yeah, be real, be real about it. Come on, don't be stupid about it. Let's not score these things in silly land. No, at the end of the day, this is a great game. It should be in the upper nineties for goodness' sake, and let's not be stupid about it. Mm. But you know we are where we are. You know, we but are um, are. at least they didn't give it a, a, a pasting because they didn't know what they had. I still don't believe they knew what they had in terms of its scope because I don't believe they got that far into it. But go mm. play it. It's really, really. I I personally think it's a very good game. So yeah, there was a series of books written by another guy, a guy called Tad Williams that I read. His Otherland series it was ninety nineteen ninety six. I think they came out ninety six two thousand one. Um, there was four of them that deal with a similar sort of conceit about this sort of cyber world that's only for the sort of rich and powerful and kind of existing um very very neuromancer it's very taking sort of some taken from that but and obviously leading things like the matrix it just became such a um a, a, a sort of almost all the tropes for these kind of these kind of games seem to sort of come from neuromancer and those william gibson books oh, completely like, all the cyberpunk stuff like johnny mnemonic and all those kind of stuff yeah yeah totally but, um, i mean it's such a heavily influential book and funnily enough a book i've never read how ironic is that no, it's, I like said, it's, it's, it's on my to read next list but but if i if the thing is i've just finished um pale fire by vladimir nabokov i don't know if i'm ready to go into another very cerebral <laughs> book for a while i just need a little bit of a you know i, I need a bit of a break <laughs> probably yeah pro- well like i said i'm just reading all the lovecraft stuff so, exactly uh, so but you know it's on my radar and i'll give it its fair dues because the game is re- and i think the game would have inspired quite a few people to do that as well so yeah that's off to them very good very good game that yeah it is there you go that's neuromancer we we approve we approve of neuromancer let's see if we approve of our next one Graham, that is over to you to tell us all about the world of espionage. Oh dear, well, this is 995, 41%. It's published by Grand Slam. Now it was developed, at least for the C64, as far as I can tell, by something called Source or Source Software. And from what I can gather, they're the people that at some point had made Predator and Psycho Soldier. So weird. And because Psycho Soldier, you'll remember from the uh, horrible whale sound that (laughs) character made in the game. So this is a game based on a, another game based on a board game, and it's a board game I'd never heard of. Um, information no. was a little bit scarce, I found, when on the initial search for this, because um, one, it's difficult to filter 
given that the name of the game is espionage, which is also a million other things and hits on mm-hmm. uh, search engine. There's also other games called espionage as well as card games and other another board game called espionage, which is not this one. There's another one. And there's also, it's a fairly common noun at the end of the day, right? So yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of scrape together what I could from the various sources. I noted later that you found the uh, Amstrad version of the um, yeah. control, the sort of game instructions, which give you do give you a bit more scope about what it was. I didn't have them when I played it and after playing it, I wasn't going to go back and revisit it because it didn't really, even knowing what the parts were, didn't add anything to it. So no. So the ultimate goal of the game, board game or otherwise, is to find four microfilms. Each contains details or plans of some kind of ultra weapon. To become the master spy and win the game, you must, you and your team must be the first to collect these microfilms, of which there's four, I believe, and get them back to your secret base. This is a turn-based game and is played by up to four people or combinations of players and CPU in the 64 case, in the C64's case. Each player controls 12 agents, that's two surveillance agents, four secret agents, and six courier agents. Each of these have different ways of moving, ultimately, and operate and operate differently in the game and also can only do certain things. So uh, only the couriers and the surveillance agents, are, or no, currents and the secret agents, I think, can actually handle the microfilms and move them around, stuff like that. Um, each of these, uh, sorry, uh, each, uh, sorry, the game is played across a game board that represents the world, capitals, airports, uh, deserts, etc. I didn't get quite get that from the C64 version, but apparently that's what it is. Mm. And you move, so the idea is you move around the board, um, I think with a dice roll in the game, or a couple of dice, find the microfilms, and should you encounter them, kill any opponent, oppose, any opponent agents um, and take away the microfilms off if they have it. Um, so that's kind of the plan. Oh, it's all completed. That's in the board game, completed by hopping over them, um, similar to how drafts plays, apparently. Um, you can do that in the game as well. You can sort of hop over and sort of take the piece as opposed to as opposed to what it would be. Um, it sort of doesn't play quite like that in the way that you can sort of work with sanctions and stuff like that later online, but I'm not necessarily going to get too far into that. Um, so each uh, player takes a turn. Uh, sorry, um, the game board has a distinctive pattern over it and is broken into lots of smaller squares, which form the ways you can move. You start on the points of a compass, so each for the four players is north, south, east, and west. Each player takes a turn to move their various agents around the game board, trying to become the master spy. It actually starts in kind of phases, and phase one is the, um, forget the, the official name of phase Detente. one. I think it's detente. Um, the detente is where you position your, your agents around the board and then so the game plays out after that um it's it's actually i found it quite it's going to be quite difficult for me to give a very accurate rating about this because initially i had absolutely no idea what i was doing none (laughs) um that said there's no guidance in the game for the player apart from a mini help option which is of no help (laughs) so the game doesn't give you any the players any affordance about the game you either have the rules and you know how to play it or you don't there is no in for this so that's a blocker really for me the C64 game starts with a series of options controlled with the directions of the joystick, something that initially confounded me for reasons I can't explain. Um, so, so I don't know why, I just found it strange. As I was trying to get the player one on player two. So you choose the number of players or by choosing human, computer, or nobody, um, if you want to sort of play it solo or play it for one or two player. Once you've done that, you enter the names of the players. Only four letters though, which is a bit stingy. So, mm-hmm. uh, And then you choose whether you to play to a time limit or... Till someone gets all the microfilms, which is, you know, and so you can play either a, a version of the game where you've got so much, so long to do it, or you can play it as the other way. Uh, you choose how long each player has to make their moves, which is 30 or 60 seconds. And then you choose something called sanctions, yes or no, which we'll sort of look at the way sanctions work. It's a little bit complicated in, in the way that it plays out. 
and you know you've you've really at this point without the instructions I'd no clue what that meant at no. all. And then the game um, once you've done that the game starts and you're off. Um, you'll be presented with a game view split into two. On the left side of the window is the top-down view, almost all of the board game or the game board, which is a bit stupid, actually, on a game like this. I don't quite know why they did that because the UI on the side is quite big and you could have just shifted it over about 20 <laughs> pixels and fit the yeah. old damn thing on. Yeah, or put the yeah. UI at the bottom of the screen. I don't know why they did it that way. Um, on the right is the UI with each player in the game or not presented with a small icon, the name, player number, um, their current money held and the number of microfilms they have or haven't got at the bottom of that window is a giant options button and the name of the game is at the giant. top. It is. You don't, you could have said you could have, there's a better way you could have designed that screen. Mm-hmm. For the initial phase, the detente, um, it's um, once it's your turn, um, a large arrow will appear. It takes ages, this bit as well. It's needlessly long and painful. But now a large arrow will appear over this tiny grid and you control this with a joystick. At the top of the board, you'll see your 12 game piece icons. Tiny they are, tiny, tiny, so tiny, but you can zoom. We'll come to that. To move a piece, you click on it and the color of the tiles across the board will change to represent where you can then place that piece. You then turn by turn set about positioning your 12 pieces over the board as the board is microscopic. Um, I had no idea if where I was placing them was advantageous in any way. No. Um, so you just place them all over the place. And that does have a bearing on how the game plays out because of it things massive, like yeah, science, yeah. stuff like that. It's kind of key. Um, so um, once you've done all that, and it takes ages, think each one, each player on it, if you set for a four-player game and there's 12 pieces for each player, you're going to be there a while. I was. Going through that, and it takes ages. <laughs> I was. Yeah. And by that point, you might be asleep. When it is your turn, as well as position your pieces, clicking the options button will reveal eight icons. A board, which allows you to zoom into the game board a little. A clock allows you to pause the game. A question mark, which probably does something as you progress into the game. Did nothing for me at this point. A Q for quit. An H for help, though this is a very little help. A C, an arrow icon that also did nothing at this point. Some kind of multi-arrow icon that also did nothing at this point. And an <laughs> option to turn the music off, which did actually turn the music off, Yay. which you'll want to do because the yeah, music is really repetitive and annoying. Zooming in reveals your tiny icons do in fact have a shape. Two of them are binoculars, four of them are guns, and six of them are cameras. So I imagine positioning the right pieces in the right places, probably important when you know exactly what they are. From the overhead mm-hmm. view, no idea what they are. No nope. idea, really. Anyone? Um, anyway, one at once everyone has their pieces distributed, the game officially starts, and then the next phase, if you like, begins. Each player now takes a turn to move their pieces around with the different types, having different ways and amounts they can move on the board. Depending on the option you've chosen at the start, you will either have 30 or 60 seconds to do your move. And again, you select your agent and move them with the arrow or click the options button. Now you can use the C arrow to make a move for you, which is kind of an advisory move. And the multi arrow makes the opponent's pieces flash, suggesting something. Don't know what though. <laughs> um, if you move your agents in certain ways, they will take your opponent's pieces. And somewhere there are microfilms. And meh, it's as far as my interest in this really got. <laughs> um, just look, taking a brief scan scantily look at the instructions. Um, so once you do get through the sort of detente, if you like, um, there's an entire section about um, the idea of way the sanctioning works, um, which is because uh, it's an espionage game and there are sort of ways that this game can play out differently. Um, so um, that plays around the idea of signs of weakness. So if an opposing agent is in your line of travel or fire, you've got to terminate them. Otherwise, you get sanctioned for doing that if you don't take the appropriate actions for doing that. So again, you can play with those kind of rules. But once you get into the game and the, it says the conflict begins in the instructions, um, you then start moving your pieces around and only certain pieces can carry the microfilms. You've got to basically try and sneak the microfilms, all four of them, and sneak around getting getting them off the other opponents who may already have them and sort of navigating your way on the board and being quite sneaky and sort of so you can see people move in. 
and move around. And that's as much as information as I, and as far as I got into it, because at that point I was kind of tired of squinting and looking at tiny little, tiny little dots on the screen and tiny little icons. Uh-huh. Um, the key issue for me here, of course, is that initially without the instructions, it's just next to impossible to understand what's really going on in this game. And it's not a get board game I had any experience of either. So, and But perhaps further to that, the game gives so little away visually and through instructions on the screen that it's also difficult to understand what is happening based on any kind of affordance that might have been given to you anyway. I don't doubt there's a good game in here, as the board game does look to have some good fun about it. It looks like an intriguing concept. But attempting to play it like this is like trying to play chess without knowing any of the rules of the game, it's just uh-huh. moving pieces around on squares. The graphics are very, very small. And again, this is another board game to C64 conversion where you don't see the whole game board. That can only be a disadvantage in a game about line of sight and things yes. like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can zoom in, but I don't see how that would help you if you don't know what you're zooming into or what anything means. On-screen items are high-res generally with some medium-res spy faces in the UI, but other than that, pretty simple. The music is a dreary and annoying drone version of the Peter Gunn theme, which you will want to stop. There are no sound effects that I came across. I think maybe if you'd played the board game and you knew what was going on, you'd probably have an affinity for this and you might be okay with it. Though that partial game board view and its tiny icons, I think, would be a frustration compared to a board with pieces on it. I don't see this being better than playing the physical game, and that ties into the key theme here. Some board games are just better left as board games. And I think this is a classic example of that. It just doesn't feel like fun, nor intriguing, nor any kind of exciting foray into the world of spies. What you end up doing is moving tiny nondescript character graphics around a giant grid with no real feedback, imperative, or clue what's going on. The result, the off switch. I'd suggest you go and find and play the board game, because I think you'll probably find it's a really good game played with your friends in that context. For this C64 game, I don't think anyone's having any fun with it. What about you? Nah, another week, another bad conversion of a board game. It's best left on the tabletop. Simple, really. Slowly moving an hour around, trying to make out what the icons are, then watching very little happen whilst the dreadful dirge of a tune endlessly loops is not the way to enjoy this type of game. Even if I was familiar with the board game, which I'm not, I don't think I'd enjoy this. All of the board doesn't fit on the screen again. (laughs) I don't know why. Just make the bits on the right smaller and you would have had more room. They nearly fit it, but like those bits on the side with the little animated spy icon and stuff going, looking up and down. It's like, why? Don't need that. No, no one needs that. Nah, didn't like this. Ill-advised, annoying, boring, and baffling. Even reading the rules, which I'd found for the Amps version, didn't help. Not for me, this one. I guess, you know, just some board games best left on a board, you know? It's like what we said about that yeah, Scruples. absolutely. Like that Scruples game, you know? Just don't, just because it's a board game don't mean it's going to be okay on the CC12. I mean, okay, you might like it if you if you do like the board game, you know what you're doing and you just want to play against the computer. But it's just, there's a better way of doing this. I don't know why it's not full screen. I don't know. No, not for me, this. Bit dull, bit boring. 41%, probably about right. I'm sure it's all right, but... Bleh. Yeah, I'd say it's about right. Yeah. yeah. Here we go. That's espionage. Let's move on quickly. Let's leave that behind and get into our last game for the month. And that game is Rackham. Rackham, Graham. Rackham up. Rackham. This is 995 uh, from Artec Digital Solutions. Courtesy of Accolade comes Rackham, mm. another in the recent run of sports sims from Accolade. Um, like we saw in your advance, there's a bit of pedigree behind this one. 
designed by Rick Banks and Paul Butler, produced by Jay Stevens, coded by Martin Edwards and Philip Armstrong, graphics by Grant Campbell, and music by Paul Butler. Quite the team here. Various members working on games like Ace of Aces, Apollo 18, The Train, Killed Until Dead, Desert Fox, Mini Put, and quite a few others. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's not a bad track record. It's not a bad team to pull from. Um, so we've recently seen Accolade's take on tennis with Serve and Volley. Uh, their take on basketball with fast break uh, and i know there's a boxing game coming up as well called tko uh, but here's their take on all things ball and cue with rackham which lets you play all manner of pool and snooker but with one rather annoying omission um which i'll come to in a bit after the game loads you have the usual accolade stylish intro uh we kind of get weirdly like a, a guy sort of like a it's like the middle bit of a guy just walking past the screen really weird it's like, well, this sort of sleazy sort of mm, music kind of play. Sort of music plays. Um, and you press the fire button, and then we get to see this sort of the guy behind the counter, obviously at the pool hall. Is this mustachioed man with mirrored sunglasses sitting behind his counter. And he's like, what do you want? And he's like, you know, what do you want? It's really nicely drawn. It's really nicely presented. It's a cool beginning. Um, and from here, you can pick what you want to do. So you press the fire button, and you can you can play, or you can if you leave it, you can let a, like a demo of trick shots load in uh, and watch them. Should you so desire, uh, they're actually quite cool to watch. I was watching them for a little while before they looped around. That was all right. If you do press the fire button, it asks you to first put in the names of the two players, and this is the game's major issue. There's no single player mode. It has to be two players. I was looking for the single player mode for ages, and then I realized there wasn't one. So this is a, a, quite the letdown for this kind of game. You know, serve and volley, the basketball, they are single player games. I'm sure they could have done a single player mode for snooker, um, but you know, it is what it is. It has to be two players. So uh, anyway, um, you then get to choose the game you want to play, and you can play from normal snooker, eight ball, nine ball, pool, or a custom game where you can mess with the rules as you play, um, move around the balls and stuff like that. So, But if you play one of the standard games, once you've chosen the game, the guy behind the desk, um, the guy behind the desk says Rackham, and the game loads in. So uh, once it loads, what we have here is a standard viewpoint we've seen in loads of other snooker games um, above the table. So it's top down, and we're viewing the table from the top down. We saw this in games like the Steve Davis one. That Steve Davis one we saw five to 100 times. It's that similar sort of view. It takes a bigger bigger part of the screen though but it's that view looking down on the on the uh, on the table um unfortunately um it does do that thing that we complained about in the other games as well where the tables exactly the same size and the balls are the same size whether you play pool eight ball nine ball or snooker which is annoying snooker's played on a 12 foot table um i know this having played snooker on many of many a proper size table it's 12 foot they're huge it certainly is and pool is played on six foot tables or thereabouts there's a big difference there's like half a you know, once twice as big. Um, so it's weird to have them all played on a single size table um, because the game to pool feel massively empty um, or not. It doesn't feel like a 12 foot table for the snooker. It just feels the scale's a bit off. I don't know what it is anyway. When you start a game, you're asked who's going first. So player one or player two, who, whoever's going first, you mm-hmm. can pick, you can actually pick, or you can opt for the option. That, I can't remember what they call it, but you basically you hit the ball down the table and the closest to the base cushion starts. So you ping it off the, you've got to hit it all the way down, it bounces off the bottom cushion, and you've got it as closest to the base cushion. And whoever gets closest, they take the break. Once this is done, the control system um, is, is the same for all the games. There's just some extra selections needed depending on the game. 
So whether you're playing eight ball, nine ball, pool or snooker, the general control system is the same. If you're playing one of the other games like pool or something like that, you have to nominate a color in pool and then you have to name the pocket you're going to pot it in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but essentially, this control system is the same throughout them, all of them. So once you started playing, it's the, this control is fairly easy to get used to. First thing you do is select the ball you want to hit. Um, so this kind of aims it. So like I said, there may be some extra selections here. So you pick the red or the, you know, if you're playing snooker, let's say you're playing snooker, you pick one of the reds and that's where you're going to hit it. That's where you're going to aim at. Um, and next you aim where you want it to go. And you do this by moving a ball icon around the edge of the table. And this kind of alters the angle at which you will hit the ball that you're aiming at. So um, essentially this makes it really easy to line the shot up with a pocket because <laughs> you put the, you know, you put the ball where you want it to hit over a pocket. So you don't have to angle it with a line. I quite like this because um, it's not as easy as it sounds, and I'll come to why in a bit. So you kind of put the ball over the pocket, and that sort of says, right, you want to hit it at this angle. This is where you want to hit it, and if you hit it perfectly, it's got to go in the pocket. Cool. Your next part, um, you have to select uh, the spin you want to put on the ball. This is labeled English in, in my range, which I didn't understand. I don't know quite know why it was, but it's the spin. So you want to put it on the ball. And you do this, you've got in the bottom left-hand corner beneath the table, you move a crosshair on the white ball. There's a white ball, and you move the crosshair on it. So, you know, you want to do backspin, you put it down to the bottom, you want to roll forward, you put it to the top, left or right spin, or where you want to put it. So you put the crosshair where you want it to put it, depending on where you want the white ball to go after you've hit the target ball. Um, and then you've got to select your power and accuracy. Now, power, this is done all together. So power is chosen by moving a bar. So you get a counter. It's like a, it's like a, uh, a sort of a series of dots, a series of lines sort of thing from zero to 10. Well, it goes 10 to zero, actually. Um, and you've got a, a, a line that you move along this is to sort of just indicate how hard you want it. 10 is the strongest. Zero is barely moving it. Um, if you just want to sort of, if you touch, you touching ball, you just want to snook someone. Um, and above this, there's a cue bouncing back and forth um and so it's going from the line you've chosen which is the speed point towards a cue ball which is to the right of the counter so this is this cue is going towards the cue ball and then back towards where you've uh, put the line so that's how it works the higher the power the faster the cue bounces back and forth so if you've got high power this cue ball cue uh cue is bouncing back and forth really fast if it's a slow shot it's bouncing quite slowly now what you've got to do to make sure that your shot is accurate is you have to press fire when the cue is as close to the ball as possible. Don't do what I did in my first few shots and thought you had to actually put it as, as close to the uh, line on the bar um, because your shots will go nowhere near where you're expecting them to because it's essentially like you've miscued, and that's what happens. So you've got to basically, when the cue is essentially just touching the white ball, press the fire button. The closer you are to it, the more accurate your shot um and so that then this is what feeds into yeah it's easy to aim for the put in the uh you know where you want to hit the ball to put it into the pocket but getting that shot is quite hard because you've got to make sure that you press you know the cue in this arcade a little bit to get on the closest to the white ball as you can once that's done there's a little pause and then the shot is taken and that's it if you've potted a ball you continue as per the normal rules of snooker pool et al you know whatever and it's, it's, it's a game of snooker. It's a game of pool. If you've missed the shot, then the next person takes their shot. If you foul, they get to have a go, so on and so on and so forth. The presentation in game is pretty good. There's a couple of commentators at the bottom when after the shot is taken, um, and there's some text in a box between them, or it might be the two players. I'm not sure what the two people are 
could be commentators, could be bottom, it could be the players, I don't know. Um, but there's some text in the bottom between them letting you know whose go it is, whether you fouled, etc., etc. Um, how well you did, if you potted one, what ball you select. So, you know, if you potted a red and you're going for a pink, you've selected pink, it tells you, and so on and so on and so forth. Um, it has the look of an accolade game to it. There's a certain look to some of these games, like Killed Until Dead and games like that. It has those kind of visual flourishes and touches. It feels very polished. The physics on the ball are probably on the balls are probably the best we've seen in one of these games. The balls, I thought the balls rolled around and bounced realistically enough. There's none of this crazy bouncing and speeding up of cushions and stuff that we've seen in other games. The in the eight ball or nine ball where you've got or the pool game where you've got spots and stripes you can see clearly the spots and striped balls and they roll and sort of are animated properly so you can make those out nice enough um and yeah so you can have a decent game of snooker or pool should you have a friend to hand otherwise it's a fairly lonely experience this playing on your own you want to play against someone should be a single player mode i don't know why there is no one player option here it turns mm. what could have been a really solid snooker game, because it is. It's the best, probably the best one we've seen, I have to say, because we've seen enough, and they've all been pretty rubbish, in something you might only play when you had a friend around, I think, which is a bit of a shame. That's all the usual trappings out there for an accolade game. So overall, it's not quite snookered behind the pink here, but certainly missed the easy red into the middle as far as I'm concerned. I think Whispering Ted Lowe would have been a little disappointed, I feel. What did you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a decent enough snooker game or multi-ball game. Um, but you know, is that possible? Is this the dream of you know? Have I woken up from some dream and there we are? <laughs> what madness is this? You know, an actual you know snooker game that's not rubbish. Yeah. Um, and I say snooker game. I what do you call this? Multi ball in pocket game, snooker pool, that kind of thing. Of course, it was accolade that came to save the day with it, wasn't it? Up to now, what have you had? Crap physics, terrible sounds, awful and weird rotating controls, <laughs> bad power indications. And no sense of what game you're playing. You may as well have been another world and another in a different <laughs> physics. Yep. Um, Snooker has had a bum deal on the C64. It, it has. has. So, in all fairness, they didn't have to try hard to make it better. Just don't do any of those things. Just you know, <laughs> tighten the screws. So, you know, Rackham. Once I'd got it in NTSC mode, because of course, it, when it loaded in PAL mode, it went wild. It's a fair crack of the whip at this kind of thing. It's a little bit Americanized, I suppose, and and um, that's not a detrimental way. I just mean that the style of the terminology and the lexicon of the game feels yeah. a little bit American. The idea of Rackham, you know, you know, we, we put our balls carefully in a triangle in the appropriate way. We don't Rackham. <laughs> um, what are you talking about? Yeah, there's this care and, care and uh, precision taken. Exactly. <laughs> it's the, this is a precision-based part of the process. It's slow and meaningful, and we put them on special dots, and we polish them and look after them and make them shiny. None of this just stick them in a... You know, rack them up and whack them, you know, none of that. Um, I thought the graphics were very good in this game, actually. You know, it looked like snooker for once and controls. Well, when you got used to them, it was okay. I mean, the idea of selecting the ball you're aiming at, I suppose you do do that. Um, but that's not that's not how snooker works, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, well, you know, I mean, you are obviously you, it does. Bullet, it is yeah, and it isn't. Well, yeah. what I mean is, it's like because you know when you go to when you go to break, you've got to sort of pick where you're gonna. It's not like you can just arbitrarily place the ball. Yeah, it has to be. You have to select a ball to aim at, and and I know that's how it works in reality. Yeah. But that isn't how snooker works in reality. You have to you know, nominate one. You mean, yeah? Well, it's, it's not just nomination. It's just it's more of a game about getting the right angle. And I know that's sort of how this works, but it's not how snooker works when you play it. You know, you don't aim, look at the ball. Well, I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't know. I just it just I found <laughs> it's a, it. It's an odd choice. I know what you mean. Well, it's. I think it's like. Um, it's how a pool player would play snooker yes. and how a pool player would perceive snooker, but that isn't how a snooker player would play snooker. 
So, which is okay because you can still play snooker and the balls, you know, they don't ping and crack and make and sound like they're going to, you know, they're not ping pong balls in space. These do actually seem to have a little bit of, you know, gravity weight. about them and weight. weight. Some and weighty, so weighty balls, balls at last. Exactly. The way you control the cue is passable. It's not terrible. The power, at least you've got a power indication and it sort of does what it say, aims to do. And that, all those things are good. I quite liked the presentation, even if it did feel like that Americanized sort of version of this in, in terms of terminology and in the kind of the way it presents. You know, when you think of a snooker hall and there's world snooker championships, it's quiet. People, you know, people cough quietly into their hands. They don't you know. There's no bellowing out. Which no one's shouting anything. Which would be unhappy. Exactly. And, you know, they're both sat over, you know, sat on what is essentially armchairs looking at a giant table, just sort of, you know, could be waiting there a while. It's all very quiet and, you know, until, you know, people like Hurricane Higgins and stuff, you know, were well, sipping there, you know, as we saw in Jack Daniels and Coke and stuff. That professional snooker simulators we saw, they could be watched over by Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger <laughs> and have a, an entire buffet on the side as they're, uh, as they're eating away. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, this is a quiet, refined game for the gentleman in the parlour who was sipping on cognac and brandy and talking about expensive, you know, business propositions. And so, you know, to go in there with this kind of hokey kind of, you know, in a bar, you know, rack them up, Jack. I don't know that those, at least we've got a decent snooker game out of it. Yeah. Albeit that may be a bit rough around the edges in terms of its sort of presentation in that way. I think this has been influenced by uh, Color of Money. Yeah, yeah, completely. It's it's because it's, it's their American company. It has an American, you know, localization to it, which is mm. fine. It's just, you know... If you're expecting a, you know, cigars and refined experience and really, Jack, are you sure that you should be doing that? Um, and oh, you snookered me, damn you. You know, instead of this sort of, you know, whack, jack, whack, smack, back, plack. You know, it's not quite like that, but it is a good game of pool. And it's very like the more modern versions that you see on mobile devices now as well. It's much more like that. Mm. And it's no bad thing. So I thought at least finally I was able to play a decent game of pool and snooker. Controls and weirdness and little nuances aside, that's not a bad thing because snooker should be a game you should be able to play on the C64 quite well. Up until now, we've had nothing that's made me want to play snooker, but this, I'd give it a go. The stupid oversight, as you quite rightly pointed out, is the lack of one player option, which is, I think, what is commonly known as gaming suicide. Yeah. So, you know, if, you, if, you, if there was a reason to dislike this game outside of all those other things, you've just done the one thing that would have given this game some appeal by making it two player only. And I guess, you know, one player can play both players i suppose if they're really into it but it's beating yourself as much as it sounds like fun it's not it's not so no so nope. i think that's that was such a silly thing to do but okay it's there it's not a bad game i think 74 percent might be a bit high for what it is but there is quite a lot of game to it so okay i'll go with that uh, and it's the best snooker game we've seen so far so i suppose in and of itself yes it's, on uh, the back of the best rugby game we've ever seen so far and i've got the best <laughs> snooker game this one is in a you know there are other games of this type although there we are. have at least four or five more rugby games to come so yeah we do um so uh so, but no rackham okay i'm not going to rack them though i'll carefully place them in the triangle thank you <laughs> yeah absolutely but other than that it's good just doesn't yeah, have the same ring to it does it <laughs> no <laughs> careful triangle <laughs> manipulation <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. There you go. That's Rackham. It's okay. Just no single player game. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? Anyway, there we go. That's it. That's our six games for this week. What did we look at? Well, uh, we looked at Thunderblade, which mm. impressive what they squeezed in, but yeah, lots but of squares. This, that squeeze comes with a with a with a hefty price. A prob- with, yeah, with a heavy price of that squeeze. Yeah, Guerrilla War. 
I don't know what they squeezed out of this. Something was squeezed. squeezed enough. <laughs> it was horrible. What came out? They squeezed something and something came out. It squeezed out of existence. Ugh. Terrible. Then we had Live and Let thing. Die, which was Buggy Boy on, in a boat. Yeah. Buggy Bouncy, Boy. It's yeah. Buggy Boy. Buoyant. Buggy Buoyant. It's Buggy Boy in boat form. Yeah, it is. Boaty uh, Boy. Yeah. Then we had Noromancer, clearly the pick of the week. Um, yes, yes. Very, very, very good. good. And very good game. I- impressive point and click adventure, espionage, board game too far. Yep. Don't um, do it. Don't do it. And finally, Rackham. Decent, good, best snooker game, but overlooked, you know, lacking single player mode. That's it. That's it for this week. There are no crap verts, unfortunately. That is it for February. We have done February out. I'm just going to go through the chart for February. This is from Commodore User. Um, in it, uh, sorry, down to number 10 was Pro Ski Simulator. Okay. Uh, down to number nine was Emily Hughes' International Soccer. Oh, dear. New, in, new entry at number eight is Thunderblade. Not, probably mm, not, as as would have, not as high as they would have mm. hoped for, I reckon. Yeah, I don't uh, think it is. Especially when at number seven, down to number seven is International Rugby Simulator. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, new entry at number six is Giants. No idea what that is. What's that? US Gold? No idea. No is it a, is it a, is it a uh, compilation? Sounds like a compilation. Yeah, it could be. Could be. Um, up to number five is Micropro Soccer. Okay. Uh, up to number four is Afterburner. Down to okay. number three is Operation Wolf. Mm. Uh, down to number. Uh, oh no. Down to number two is Double Dragon. Thank God it's down. But it's down for number one, isn't it? And in at number one, yeah. new entry at number one is Robocop. We haven't got to that yet, have we? We haven't. Uh, we haven't got to that. We haven't got to Operation Wolf. Sorry, we have got to Operation. No. We haven't got to Afterburner. No. Uh, let's play Double Dragon. Being a number two, well, that's, you know, that's true. <laughs> that, that is true. Um, the rest of the chart, at number 11 is Last Ninja 2. Mm. Um, at number 12 is Joe Blade 2. Oh, they sound very me. similar, but they're very different. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> number New entry at number 13 is Batman. That'll go up. Uh, probably. Uh, down to number 14 is Bomb Jack. That's the budget that we release. Uh, down to 15 is Ace 2. Okay. Uh, a new entry, obviously, on uh, budget release is Leaderboard, 16. Bargain. Bargain yeah. budget, that. Down to 17 is End Zone. American football game, by chance? Probably. It's from Alternative, so probably. Uh, budget release for Commando at number 18, down to number 18. Uh, down to number 19 is Armalite. Okay. And finally, still hanging in there uh, is uh, Football Manager 2 at number Goodness 20. Me. Game never goes away. Hi. Um, there's a lot of games next month. Um, there is. There's like wow. I think I think we've got about 36 to get through. Crikey, Bob! So it's, so it's a four-parter, definitely. March is the last of the big months. I think April's three, and then everything's two after that. But this is the last. This this is clearly the uh, the Christmas deluge. Yes. Um, so games we will be looking at. We've got Afterburner. Okay. Batman. Okay. Better Dead Than Alien. Hmm. Uh, Camelot Warriors is a re-release that everybody looks at one, aren't we? That's the one with the heft mighty jump, mighty leap. It was, yeah. Circus Games. Okay, I'm not uh, to that. Dragon Ninja. Oh, God. Um, Ghost Hunters. That's I think that's a re-release, okay. isn't it? Is that the old yeah, one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm trying to, It's trying to remember what's what's old and what's not these days. Golf Master. I think that's okay. new. Uh, but budget, by the looks of it. Uh, Ghibli Special Day Out, we won't be looking at. Jet Bike Simulator. Oh gosh, guess Another who that's one. from. Uh did we ever look at Jockey Wilson's Darts Challenge? I don't remember. No, we didn't. We're not looking at that. that. Jordan versus Bird. 
I want that to be a basketball player versus a giant bird, <laughs> like, a, bird. like an ostrich. <laughs> just big bird. Yeah, it's just it's like a wrestling match between a basketball player and an ostrich. It <laughs> won't be, but that's that's you can't have your dreams, can or you? Or it's or it's the country versus uh, <laughs> versus a bird. Versus one bird. Yeah, yeah, it's um, big, yeah tough bird. <laughs> Lead storm. Interesting. 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 Uh, Tim Follin piece of music, isn't it? It is indeed. Um, I, I don't. Uh, Legend of Black Silver. I don't know if that sounds adventure. That for adventure. Uh, Master Blaster. I think we looked at that mm, one yet. Menace. Okay, that's the shooter. Shoot em up. Side is, scroll yeah. shoot em up. Operation Hormuz. Okay. Sounds strategies, but there's no strategy section at the moment, so we're looking at. Pasteman Pat. Oh, Lord. Peter Packrat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that would sound good. Power Play Hockey. Okay. Uh, Robocop. Very good. Rocket Ranger. It's not. No, Rocket Ranger. That is. Okay. Cinema uh, where are back. Yeah, Rock and Bolt we've already looked at. Uh R-Type? We haven't looked at R-Type, have we? No. We've looked at everything but R-Type. Yeah, we have, yeah. So I'm trying to remember if we've looked. We haven't. Uh, SDI. Okay. Uh, Soldier of Light. Spaceball. Mm. Okay. Um, Star Ray. Wow, okay. Steel. Never heard of it. The most generically titled game ever, Superhero. <laughs> Gosh, not looking forward to that. Quickly followed by Superman. Okay. Then Super Sports. Okay. <laughs> and Super Stuntman. Okay, all the supers are out. I didn't know there was uh, a Superman game on the 64. Interesting. Well, there's something. Technocop. Okay. Terra Fighter. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, Tiger Road. I want, is that an arcade conversion? I think, I that, I th- yeah, I think so, yeah. TKO, which is the last of the four accolade mm-hmm. um, sports games. It's a boxing one. Um, Spitting Image. Okay. Um, Vecclamons. Right, okay. Zach McCracken and the mm-hmm. Avian Mindbenders. Okay. Okay. And finally, Zamza, Zamzara. Okay, okay. That's a lot of games. There's a lot of games there. There's a lot of big games there as well. Going to split those up. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure they are split up. But that's it. So that's what's coming up over the next four weeks. Wow, um, so some heavy hitters in there. There are, yeah. I think we've got like something like about nine episodes, so it's back to an old school. <laughs> I'm actually really looking forward to visiting some of these again. Obviously, Zach McCracken. I've got. I love that game anyway. But I'm actually there's still those ones I'm looking forward to in there, like Rocket Ranger. I haven't played in a long time on the 64 because obviously I've got it more on the Amiga. But I remember the C64 version being mind blowing. They got to nick in loads of the graphics for demos. In fact, there's an entire S Express demo called Watchmen that's blatantly the wrist graphic from Rocket <laughs> Ranger, <laughs> where we did a little demo on a little screen that you have as your wristwatch thing. Well, you um, might as well. Yeah, well, it's an iWatch. You know, it's nowadays if we an iWatch back then, of course, it was future science fiction stuff. But now we've got them. It was. We've actually neuro- got what we've got those things. It was neuromancer type shit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right there, you go. So that's February done. It's been some a couple of good games that we didn't see coming. Yeah, um, true. but some utter guff. <laughs> that is true as well. Yeah, it's true. It's been a horrific arcade conversions that have have genuinely left a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. Um, very much so there's been some weird stuff in there it's been a weird month you know for every you know total eclipse we've got an exploding fist um yeah you know we've got for everybody double dragon we've got a micro sucker just this then the sea of crappy arcade conversions is just knows no bounds and just why why do it blip blip video game classics and ocean gorilla war and blip and you know just Silly and strange things. We have some strangers, and we live and let die was an odd thing to release. Yep. Uh, just and if you know, if you want to define, you know, I know it was Dick Jones and OCP that released it, but if you, um, <laughs> if you want to, you know, look at look at this period of the C sixty four life, and you want to understand 
how money making was really done at the core level with the, some of these releases. That is a classic example of taking one game that wasn't really finished, sticking 007 yeah. on it and releasing it because you can yeah. and just calling it and to- totally, totally cashing in on people's good natures about 007 and James Bond, which is a big, strong license in the UK specifically. Mm. Just, just that's, you know, that's Dick Jones or whomever made that decision. You know, you know, whether it was the right thing to do for the business and he killed Bob Morton because he decided he didn't want to do it. It's irrelevant. It just seems like it's a bit of a ripoff and those arcade conversions are equally, if not more than a worse ripoff. Terrible things, terrible things. But there has been some gems, aren't there? Times of Law, Neuromancer, great games. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, there has been some good games. I mean, uh, Thingy was pretty good. Uh, Mac Pro Soccer. Yeah, we had the, another we, one. Sorry. We had technically the best rugby game we've played. Or the worst. Or the worst. <laughs> Hellfire Attack wasn't terrible. It was better than was had a weirdness to it. But yeah, Times of Law and um, Neuromancer clearly the the best two um, that we <laughs> played that month. Um, there we go. That's it. That's February done. Um, if you wish to support the podcast, you can do that financially. Uh, you can head on over if you just want to buy us a Kofi, Kofi dot com forward slash up to the past or whatever it is, um, and you can buy us one there. That's greatly appreciated. If you want to sign up for the Patreon, you can do that as well. That's patreon.com forward slash zapped to the past. That would be hugely appreciated as well. There's two tiers. There's the chicken is a quid. Or there's the full tier, um, £4-odd, £4.50, which gets you access to the Discord, past the podcasts, and all that kind of stuff that goes on. And uh, you get the podcast early um, on the Friday instead of the Monday. So, you know, and it obviously helps us out hugely as well. If you can't do any of that, if you could, you know, you can check all our uh, episodes out um, on Deadlock's uh, PDF format. That's really cool. If you search for Deadlock and Zap to the Past on um uh twitter you'll find that if you can give us a shout out on twitter or you know if you've got time especially it really helps chuck us a review on itunes or something if you are liking what we're doing if you like what you hear it doesn't have to be long um this has been quite a long episode i feel um i didn't think it was going to be but it, it is it's round out the february um we'll be back with uh match anything else you want to add mr raddings no, just saying um if you do fancy buying any merchandise you can go to zap to the past yeah. dot shop or you can find the Redbubble links, both of which are in the show notes. But that's zaptothepast.shop where you'll find some funny T-shirts and stuff. Yeah, get yourself, get yourself a cool hat or a T-shirt. Mm, do it. Be good. Or a mouse mat or a pin button. Yeah, they're all out all there. These things the links are, are all available. in the show notes. So go and explore at your, to your heart's content. All very reasonable prices. <laughs> or my name's not Dick Jones. Bob Reasonable Price, yeah. <laughs> Bobby Reasonable Price. <laughs> <laughs> Brother to Jack. Jack, Jack expensive, price. yeah. <laughs> Jack expensive would sell nothing cheap. Probably reasonable yeah. price would. Yeah, you know, if not. you buy a t-shirt from us, you, at some stage, Lord Humongous is very happy about that. He will. Um, he, he really wants to eat the ice cream. He does. Um, so, on that note, as per usual, I have been Adrian Mills, and I have been Graham Ruddings, and you have been listening to Zapped to the Past, and we will see you again next week where we start our coverage of March 1989. So. Goodbye and see you then. Thank you for listening to the Zap to the Past podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the world of Commodore 64 games, as well as the music, films and TV from around the 1980s, driven, of course, by the issue of Zap 64 magazine published at that time. We will return with a whole new batch of games and stuff to talk about next week. Until then, if you want to listen to or download previous episodes of Zap to the Past, and why wouldn't you, they can all be found on our website at zaptothepast.com, as well as being available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Audible, Player FM, and, well, pretty much anywhere where we can upload them. 
By the way, we do always love to hear from our amazing listeners. So if you'd like to contact us about anything in the podcast or beyond, you can do so by emailing us at zaptothepast at gmail.com. We're also active on Twitter under at zaptother, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and most social media platforms. Just search for Zap to the Past and you'll find us. Oh, and if you like the podcast and what we're doing, please do like, share, review, rate us. It really helps. Something, apparently. The Zap to the Past podcast is written and produced by Adrian Mills and Graham Ruddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. All opinions expressed are those of the writers, and while we indeed love Zap64 magazine, the Zap to the Past podcast is not affiliated with it in any way. Stay safe, see you next time, and remember, we play these games so you don't have to.